Michelle Linhart went from sleeping at a Greyhound bus station because she couldn't afford a hotel room to becoming the first female agent ever appointed by the President of the United States to lead the DEA. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 10, Game of Crimes. This is Morgan Wright, and I am literally here with my partner in crime. Murph, Steve Murphy, and we are into double digits now. We hit the 10th episode. Look at us. Which we're screwed now because Murph only has two hands. That's as high as he can go. So if we get to 11, we're we're screwed. I got to take my socks off. (laughs) Which means we can only go to episode 19. Murph's missing his big toe. No, hey, guys. Hey, we want to thank you for uh, everything that you're doing. The it's really been fun to see the audience grow. It's been really fun to get your feedback and watch as we improve on things. So, guys, we just want to say thank you very much for this. And last episode, I'm telling you, El Chapo, I still got a sphincter factor of, you know, 12.5, I think. That final shootout, all the rental cars that were just destroyed. Oh, I mean, a, I love listening to that story. <laughs> it just brings a, a sense of reality to what really goes on out there. And I want to just very quickly say thanks to our listeners, too, because, you know, we get on here. And, and they're not silly. listeners anymore. These are our friends. These are players. They're players in the game of crimes. They are now Woo-hoo. officially known as players. Well, sweet, but thank you guys. We couldn't do any of this without you. And and as long as you encourage us, we're going to continue to bring you the best interviews we can find, things that mostly you're not going to hear anywhere else. So, And you're going to get the detail. Absolutely. And we're seeing a lot of comments. I've never knew this kind of detail, even about stories. Everybody knows about El Chapo, but nobody knows Mm -hmm. the real story, right? So we've got some good stuff coming up. So anyway, folks, those Apple reviews, those five stars, they really do help. It's like the magic kingdom at Disney. We don't know how the magic works. We just know it works. So keep giving us five stars. We really, really appreciate it. Head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for everything. We, um, I'm throwing another surprise at Murph because I surprised him last time when I said, hey, look, we're going to launch Patreon. Uh-oh, what's going to happen today? Hey, well, Sandy Salvato, <laughs> you know, you know, our resident oh, mafia yeah. person, you know, she's saying, hey, where's the merch? Can we get some stickers? So guess what? We're going to work. Murph and I are going to get together. Uh, he's got some big news for you, too, here in a minute. But we're going to work together. We're going to figure out the merch thing. We wanted to do things in stages, get the podcast launched first, get Patreon launched and then do merch. We want to make sure when we do something, um, we do it right. Hey, we got some DEA narco stickers right now, but that doesn't do much for Game of Crimes, does it? No, but you know what? We might we might use that book. We might use that book of yours as a grand prize giveaway. Oh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. So anyway, you guys head on over there. We also got our mailing list. That's a great place for us to also stay in contact with you outside of social media. We'll drop you some emails of stuff that's going on. And guess what? You have to get to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have now released quite a bit of content. We have a special when this episode drops, Murph, guess mm-hmm. what else is dropping on that Monday? I don't know. Episode two of you and Javier. Oh, when we there talk you go. about the realness. So, guys, we're surprising all of you Patreon fans that are out there, all of our players mm-hmm. that are out there. Guess what? You're going to get an extra bonus episode this month. We're not going to wait a whole month to put it out there. So, get over there. We've got some QA. We're currently voting on which movie Murph and I will subject to the narcometer. So get, or, or TV show, could be any of those. Yep. And if, you know, if you're going to go listen to episode two on Patreon, bring a good comfy pillow because guaranteed to help you with insomnia. 
Now, nah, folks, it's good. I'm telling you, this this is details you will never see on Narcos on Netflix. You'll never see, hear about or read about in the book. So anyway, and the other thing too is if you just feel like supporting the show, head on over to paypal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you fantabulous player type content. And by the way, Murph, as we always say, this is a show about crime. You know, this is, we talk about bad people doing bad things and bad things doing bad people to good people. And guess what? If that's not your cup of tea and if that's not your bag, baby, you know, shagadelic, that's okay because we take the story seriously. But never ourselves. Never, ever. Not never. once in our entire life have we ever taken ourselves seriously. <laughs> that's why we're so damn silly on the show. That's right. Hey, but Murph. Yes. Before we get into Game of Crimes, guess what time it is? Oh, I think it's embarrassed Murph time. Uh, some kind of, we got something Man, like you, that called. You, you got a worse rate. <laughs> you are 0 for 90. <laughs> so let's take them in to Small, Small Town, Town Police, Police Blotters. And boy, have I got a couple good ones for you today. Here's what's really fun. We've got a couple. One uh, is a current small town, uh, small county deputy, and the other one retired from a small town, sent us a couple stories. So oh, the that, first uh, that makes it even better because now oh, you this guys is real, are calling this in is, with your real stories, too. The dude wrote this report. So nice. it, it, this comes from over Twitter from Deputy Brock Holmes of the Marquette County Sheriff's Office in Wisconsin. By the way, I did some checking. The Wisconsin, the population of Marquette County, 15,075. Salute. Salute. All right. He's the listener. So here's the, here's the thing that he took. As a sheriff's deputy in rural Wisconsin, I love the small town police blotter. These are notes for some of my several uh, favorite calls several years ago. A woman was crying hysterically when her dreadlocks wrapped around her foster parents' wings multiple times. He arrived and was able to remove the parrot and return the parrot back to its cage without injury to the parrot or any hair loss. He says it's small calls like this that allow you to look back and laugh at some of the outrageous things people call us for or need help with. Can you imagine responding to a call? Attention one, Adam 12, woman with dreadlocks with parrot trapped in there. <laughs> You're going to go dispatch repeat? <laughs> say, say what? <laughs> no, uh, uh, just uh, let's think about this for a second. Let's don't scoot right through it. How the hell did a parrot get stuck in a woman's dreadlocks? What, was it attacking her? I mean, is it a vicious parrot? You know, we, we need answers to this. Damn it, we need answers. All right. So, Jeez. Deputy Brock Holmes, Marquette County, Wisconsin, we need answers. How did this vicious attack happen? We want to know. All <laughs> hey, right. brother, thank you very much, too, for sending that in to us. And this next one comes from a buddy of mine. We've never met in person, but we've been involved in these police forums and stuff for a long time. Matthew Hawley, he's a retired cop from Bedford, New York. Like I said, we've known each other. So he sent this. I won't read the whole thing, but it came from a post from a sheriff's office. It had a picture of this guy that looked, <laughs> he looked like he belonged on, on a Facebook post. Right. It said, public notice. And this is from the sheriff of Putnam County uh, in Florida. If you believe you were sold bad drugs, we are offering a free service to test them for you. Douglas Peter Kelly, 49, of Hawthorne, found himself in a situation where he thought somebody had sold him the wrong illegal narcotic. He contacted him, said he purchased meth about a week earlier and had a bad reaction, so he brought it in and had the deputies test it. And guess what, Murph? It tested positive for meth. And he went to jail. What a moron. Good he was Lord. walked to the jail and held on a $5,000 bomb. One, you know, the, 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 the bond for possession of meth was $5. The bond for being felony stupid was five, you know, $50,000. Was it P.T. Barnum said, a new idiot's born every minute? A sucker's Holy born cow. every minute. All right. Hey, this next one, though, Murph, i got to read this to you. And by the way, 
I, I thought this was BS when I first read it, but I did my research. Here's the story. At 6.12 p.m. in the 4700 block of Portside Drive, Vermilion, a man put Icy Hot on his wife's vibrator, divorce is pending. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh. Ladies, I, well, I'm sorry he read that to you, ladies. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, and... I, I thought this was total BS, but I did my research. Vermilion is a city in Erie and Lorain counties in the U.S. state of Ohio on Lake Erie, about 35 miles west of Cleveland. Its population was 10,594 at the 2010 census. This was in the Friday, May 25th, 2012, online, or the paper for the Sandusky Register. This is actually in the... <laughs> oh, you, you know what? We're going to get some comments on this one. <laughs> No shit, divorce is pending. Oh, my God. Well, I was, boy, that must have really been a nasty divorce to do that. <laughs> well, you know what, though? If she's using a vibrator to start with, that says something about the husband, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, my God. This, right. this is going downhill real quick. This is, well, this, yeah. Uh, here's, here's some more marital bliss coming at you here. No, not quite marital bliss, but happy couples. 5.47 p.m. Police responded to an Amherst site where a man and woman were hiking and the woman became ill. So far, so good, right? Mm -hmm. Police determined that the woman was just trying to get out of a date set up using the WeChat app and feigned illness instead of being more forthcoming about why she wanted to end the hike. Oh, my gosh. And this makes a police report. What was the report? What was the complaint when they called in? <laughs> well, an ill woman, so she's faking being ill, so oh I guess gosh. wants an ambulance to get her out of this disaster of a date. So I guess EMS shows up and it's like, don't tell him. I just want to get out of this date. Act like I'm dying. Yeah, and here's your bill for $500 for the ambulance. Uh, unbelievable. <laughs> when all, she had to do, all she had to do is say, honey, take me home. I'm done. Yeah, it's a, I have a headache. Just fake a headache. Come on. <laughs> one. Okay, here we go, Murph. Now it's time for what year was it? Okay, here we go. This is a good one. Not none only of, do you none have of to, these are good. Oh, yes, it is. Not only do you have to tell me the year, you have to tell me which country. Okay. Here we go. Attempted okay. wife murder at Greenfield Hollywell. So I won't read the whole story, but basically the gist is William Wood, aged 53, a butcher, was indicted for that he feloniously did wound his wife, Elizabeth Wood, with intent in doing so then and thereby feloniously, willfully, and of his malice aforethought to kill and murder the said Elizabeth Wood at Greenfield near Hollywell on the 28th of April last. All right, I'm going to guess it's Scotland. Uh, get, wrong. No, really? No. Let me read just a little bit more. Uh, Mr. Marshall instructed by Mr. R.J. Williams, solicitor, Flint, prosecuted, and Mr. Colt Williams instructed by Mr. G.E. Trevor Roper, solicitor, mold, defended. The circumstances have already been reported in our columns. Anyway, so he, she was a widower with two kids. He was a widower with two kids, and they got together, and he tried to stab her. Oh, he, he stabbed her in the neck, tried to killing her. The judge sentenced him to 15 years, remarking that it was fortunate he was not tried for murder. So you got the place wrong. It was actually Liverpool Mercury in the Merseyside, England paper. I should have just said UK. You, well, uh, you've got to be more specific. I would just like Jeffrey. Can you be more specific? Okay, and so did it happen July 25th? of 1884, July 25th of 1894, or July 25th of 1904? Oh, let's go with uh, 1894. Wrong. Damn, 94, 84. There you got it. You got it on the second try this time. 
July 25th, 1884 in the Liverpool Mercury paper, Merseyside, England. Well, and you know what? Scotland touches England, so it's the same thing. It's okay. It's kind of the same oh, thing. So. You know what? I'm going to hear about that one, too, because our friends in Scotland are going to yeah. we're not British. Lad, you got your knickers in a twist there, did you, lad? <laughs> okay, so hey, guys. Well, hey, look, before we get into Game of Crimes, uh, this is kind of a special episode uh, for a couple reasons. And uh, Murph, I'm going to let you uh, take it from here. What are we talking about? Well, let's talk about uh, your boss, your former <laughs> boss, and introduce uh, the episode. Because while we were lighthearted, there's kind of, this kind of comes yeah, with some sad news. It does. So today's guest is uh, a person that I have the utmost respect for. It's a uh, an individual who came from a very small town. She's going to tell you the story and worked her way up through the ranks. You, I think you're going to be surprised because she made it all the way up to being presidentially appointed by both uh, parties, Democratic and Republican. So she served under presidents from, from both parties to the administrator of the Drug Enforcement Administration. So that's obviously a presidential appointed position. Uh, what she went through to get started in law enforcement and then worked Wait till her way you hear the story is, about the, 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 oh my God, the, when she took a trip with her mom to, yep. to test. <laughs> yep. We uh, died laughing. I, and it was, I would never, as long as I've known this lady, and we're talking about Michelle Linhart. Uh, as long as I've known her, I had no idea about all this. She is one of the most humble individuals I've ever met in my life, even as the administrator of DEA. And, and you got to understand that's the highest point uh, that you're going to get within, you know, in a law enforcement agency on the Fed side. Uh, so we had a great time with her interview. Uh, we were hoping to have uh, a few other things on here from her, some photographs, and you'll understand what we're talking about after you listen to this interview. But her mom passed away recently. So, Michelle, our hearts and our prayers go out yeah. to you. This is nothing funny about that. I've been through it. I don't know if you have, Morgan. Yeah, I have. I've lost both parents. And look, with Michelle, too, she makes it very clear that her mom, um, she was— her mom was her best friend, and her mom yeah. was also her biggest fan. And you just could hear the 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 love. I mean, just the admiration she had for her mom, and she was taking care of her in her home while we were doing this interview. And then uh, we get ready to launch the episode, and we only find out. So while we take a lot, while there's a lot of funny things in there, we obviously at the time her mom was still alive. But you know, we want to extend seriously our heartfelt uh, mm-hmm. sympathies and condolences. The best that we can, because this lady, when you hear her story, and for you women out there, if you know, we love bringing stories about women who have held powerful positions. What she went through to become the head of an agency is nothing short of the frickin' American dream. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Absolutely. And, and I just think you're going to love it. Michelle, we, we love you. We're sorry for what you're going through. We understand completely. But listeners, I think you're going to find this one of the most enjoyable. Uh, they're not listeners anymore. They're players the f- now. Players. Well, I don't know. Players make them sound like they're pimps or hookers no, or something us. like so, that. So, All right. Well, let's do it, Murph. <laughs> Are you ready to play the biggest game of all? The Game of Crimes. Everyone get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring on Michelle. Hey, welcome back. This is going to be a fun one, eh? Don't you know? Because we've got some folks... I'm sorry, I can't. She, when we introduce her to you, yeah, you know for sure she's gonna. She's originally from Minnesota, you know, but she became. She went on to become the big cheese at DEA. 
So, Steve, I think you should take this intro because I'm going to crack up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is this. You know, I say this a lot about having old partners and old friends on the on the show here, but the, today is a true, true honor. All seriousness, all joking aside, it's my pleasure and Morgan's pleasure to welcome the former administrator of the Drug Enforcement Administration. A lady who worked her way up through the ranks. We're going to tell you all about her story here just in a little bit. But when she became the administrator, what made it different for her and made it different for us was she was one of us. She came up through the ranks. She paid her dues on the streets. She made cases. She put people in jail. She fought for her life on the streets of our country. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michelle Lindhart. Whoa! <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I guess I need to say you betcha. I'm ready you for betcha. today. Yeah, oofta. Oofta. Yeah. Oh, no, we got, we got to get into this because there are so many ways we can go. And people, you know, you get, people think when they see you in D.C., it's like, oh, you're, you're you know, you're inside the beltway type of thing and whatever, but they forget. You came from the Midwest, eh? So, yeah. uh... Yep, you got it. White Bear Lake, Minnesota. I'm which, a Minnesota girl. Which has a strong reference in the movie, as we were talking yesterday, Fargo. No, you're talking about one of my favorite movies. Now, half, of, half the Minnesotans hate that movie because they say, we don't talk like that. And the other half love it. And I'm, I love it. Uh, loved the character played by Francis. Um, loved Margie. And uh, in that movie, if you remember, there's a little scene with uh, two little hookers in a hotel room, and one of them says she's from White Bear Lake, and then says, Go Bears. That was my high school. So, (laughs) you know, a lot in common, a lot in common with that movie. (laughs) Well, there's even more in common with that, because we have done our intelligence work. We have dug deep, and Steve, what did we discover well, you know, I, I know that uh, you were involved in sports and athletics as much as you could be, Michelle, while you were in high school. But what you didn't tell us is about your mascot. Who was in that bear costume? Oh, how did you how did you know about that? Wow. Hey, Michelle, uh, we can't disclose sources and methods. Wow. You should know that by now. Train, train criminal investigators. You made us this way. Well, I was... <laughs> My junior and senior year in high school, uh, most football games, uh, I was the bear mascot. All right. Uh, and and basketball every once in a while, but uh, I was a true bear fan, and I I had a little pep squad as well, and we called ourselves the White Bear Rowdies, and uh, we made we made all the games fun. You know, and we and we give you hard a hard time about this, but actually, it's something to be proud of because you took the initiative there in high school. But I do have one other question: Were you selected as a mascot because of your height? Did that have anything to do with it? <laughs> that did not have anything to do with it. <laughs> okay. And okay. and what I tell people is, you know, I did it once. Someone asked if I would do it. I did it. I loved it, and it was the warmest way to watch a football game in you know October in Minnesota. The bear costume was. You know, like wearing a big blanket. So it was, it was and, and you were down on the field. It was a place to be. And you probably, you probably got him free to all the games too, right? 
Well, that's a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't know who was under the bear costume. So I have I make fun of Minnesota with love in my heart because my sister and brother-in-law and my two nieces and nephew are all, we were talking yesterday from that area, Apple Valley. Uh, they went to Rosemont High School, go Irish. Uh, he plays football at Bethel. My oldest niece graduated from the U up there. My youngest niece is still going to the U. And we've been up there several times. So, you know, it, it was, and you're right. We went to a couple of the football games up there when my nephew was playing. Bundle up, eh? Yeah. Well, you know, Michelle, you, I mean, he's making fun of your, your accent. I'm not making fun of it because you can hear me. You've known me for 25 years. <laughs> this is as good as my accent gets. Oh, we were talking yesterday, too, especially you get on a couple flights. I think, what did you oh, say? Delta goodness. was the one that used to carry I, a lot I of Minnesotans. I thought I lost my accent until I would, you know, every time I'm on a Delta flight, especially one that goes through Minneapolis, uh, half, you know, half the plane is uh, folks from Minnesota. And all of a sudden I, I hear the O's. Oh, don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, it's, it's back. Or, or I'm around my brothers and sisters, and it just it just pops out. Well, and, and every place has their jokes. Yes. Ollie and Lena, I think, were some of those from Minnesota. So we won't say <laughs> some of those on the air. But, hey, as we always do when we start off on these things, we always want to find out about you, you know, because the, the real question is, how does somebody who is the White Bear Lake mascot, Go Bears, end up in <laughs> law enforcement? I mean— you know, where, where did you go to start that? Because I think part of it, too, is you actually interviewed one of the first female police officers there in White Bear Lake. Yeah, I did an article when I was in high school on her, Carolyn Bailey. Um, I knew even before then uh, that I wanted to be a police officer, but it was uh, almost impossible to try to, you know, read a book about a female police officer. Um, so I actually went down and interviewed her and did a paper. But wanting to be a police officer went way back to grade school, and my mother uh, reminded me that she got called in by the nuns. Uh, I went to Catholic school all the way all the way to tenth grade, actually. But uh, when I was in grade school, um, the nuns said, "You know, M Michelle kind of uh, marches to a different <laughs> drummer. Um, she she draws purple Christmas trees." And she wants to be a police officer. Of course, if anybody, if you knew my mother, you'd realize that she thought, oh, my goodness, that's great. They were, they were worried about it. My mother was like, go, Michelle. Yeah. That's so my I've girl. had a lot of people try to analyze, you know, why I would have, at a young age, I'm talking second, third, fourth grade, want to be a police officer. And they have analyzed that it must have been, a, was I a victim of crime? And, uh, you know, I've told the story before about uh, I the first time I did feel like I was a victim of crime is my little blue huffy was stolen uh, right, right from my front yard. And uh, I just thought, uh, I've got to find it. And so I started the Little Girls Investigations uh, Club. I... I tacked, I tacked <laughs> right. little signs on the on the trees and walked the streets of St. Paul and the alleys looking for my my bike. And a few days later, I actually found it abandoned uh, down an alley. They were scared. So, uh, they they abandoned it because they didn't want the little girls' investigation club <laughs> to find the hardened criminals. <laughs> but there was, you know, I've been asked, "Is there law enforcement in your family?" I'm the very first one uh, that ever went into law enforcement. And they say, well, did you have run-ins with the cops? Did you know the cops? 
No, at a young age, I didn't. I just, I think it was because I was the oldest of seven kids, and the youngest one was eight years younger than me, and my mom and dad worked. So I was always in charge, and I... I was the enforcer. You were the enforcer. I, I needed more fights. <laughs> I got scars. I, I can tell you. Which, which prepared you well for being DEA administrator. But I always had this, this feeling, you know, it was always about justice, you know. Um, I was always into, you know, doing the right thing. And, um, you know, I remember my mom told me the story about uh, when I was in grade school, you know, I was... Uh, I had a birthday party, and I never wanted to leave anybody out. And she said, well, go go invite four or five friends over. So I did. I came home. She said, okay, who's coming over? And I invited every girl in my class. And she said, what? Oh, Dad, what did you, Michelle, what did you do? <laughs> and, and I said, I didn't want to leave anybody out. I was always, always kind of into, you know, there's rules and you do the right thing. And um, I, I was, I was, you know, I was called the child in charge, you know, later became the special agent in charge. <laughs> in charge. But Jen, you were still managing <laughs> yeah. a bunch of children, right? <laughs> hey, and I was one like of them. Murphy. Yeah, that's right. I'll, hey, be well, the fir- I'll be the first to tell you, I have not grown up. I'm in my. Uh-huh. I will tell you how far into my 60s I am, and I don't ever plan on. Because well, you don't up. remember how far into <laughs> no, your 60s you are, you forget. Do not change, oh, that's Steve. You, you're always worth a laugh. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Well, I thought you were going to talk about um, the reason you got into it. Is that were you a victim of crime? I thought making you eat lutefisk was a criminal act. Oh my God, that, that no, I would I would want to lock up the person that made me eat lutefisk. I can't stand <laughs> the smell of it. <laughs> And, you know, I've... Well, for the uninitiated oh out God, there, let people know what lutefisk is, Michelle. And uh, <laughs> some people think it's a delicacy, but if you walk into a house and someone has just prepared lutefisk, uh, you, you'll run out the back door. You know, and, and for our friends in Norway, hey, this is no... Uh, we're not we're not ditching you guys here. We're not ditching, yeah, but definitely. it's an acquired taste. <laughs> and I can still... I, I, I can still smell it right now, and uh, it's putrid. Ugh. Oh, well, well, we've ruined the podcast, and we're going to have to start over again. <laughs> Another thing there, you mentioned the Huffy. So for our international listeners, can you tell us what that was? I know what it is, but... Well, it was just a little blue bike. We didn't really have a lot of money, so it was... it was. Uh, I couldn't afford a Schwinn, but I had a little blue Huffy bicycle, and it had a little white basket on the front, and these pink streamers, and, you know, that was... That's how I rolled back then. Did you have cards oh, yeah. in your spokes? Oh, yeah. Did you have you cards in your spokes? That. Oh, you of had course. To had to have those. <laughs> you had to be cool. <laughs> had to fit in with the other kids. You had to have that sound. You, I mean, you. so that was your thing with high school. So how did you, so how, what was your track then to get into law enforcement? So you went to community college first. What did you study there? I was really a Nancy Drew fan. I read every Nancy Drew book when I was young. And so I, I always thought I wanted to be an investigator, a police officer. And every once in a while, I'd go off on another tangent and say, well, I want to be an architect. I want to be a shoe designer. Uh, But I always came back to wanting to be a police officer. (laughs) Thank thank God I did. Um, But my family, you know, my family didn't have a lot of money. Both my mom and my dad had to work and uh, I really didn't have enough money to go away to college, um, you know, out of town and go to four-year school. So 
Um, there was a law enforcement class, a law enforcement degree you could get at a junior college in White Bear Lake. Uh, so I, I went to Lakewood, Lakewood uh, Junior College, uh, played sports. That's another reason I went there. Played. What's the mascot there? The Wood Duck. Oh, <laughs> I want to see go, in that costume. We, go, we now. went from Go Bears to Go Wood Duck. And there actually was a Wood Duck costume. I did not wear it, but um, <laughs> and I, I got my two-year degree there. I took as many credits as possible because you know I I didn't know that I would ever have enough money to finish a degree. So I would just take as many right. credits as possible. Right. Um, I worked. Uh, going while I went to college, and I had the best job in the world. Um, I worked for a security company where we we did all the ushering. We sat people at the Viking games, at the Twins games, every high school tournament. Oh, my nice. favorite was we caught gate crashers at rock concerts, and. Oh my God! Talk about an adrenaline rush. So I I did that. That got me through my first two years of of high school. Wait, wait a minute. Tell us a tell us a tell us a story about you running down you. Oh, let's not let's not give away your height yet because it figures into this. So, but it's to say you weren't exceedingly tall. But you're running down probably drunk Minnesotans trying to crash the gates at rock concerts. Oh my you got to tell there us one. There were so many that um, you know. Anytime I think it was the Who. Who? Uh, the Who came to came to same. Sorry, who right, came right. to Saint Paul <laughs> one year, and uh, uh, that was my first experience doing gate crashing. And then uh, Rod Stewart came to Minneapolis, and um, there were always huge crowds trying to get into these concerts. So we would, uh, and I was usually maybe there were a couple girls, but. Um, I would volunteer to do it. We'd put on these T-shirts. We'd go outside the venue and uh, look for where people were, you know, trying to trying to get in. And then we'd walk the inside and look for the people that would stand by the door to let their buddies in. Um, and some sometimes, oh, I loved it. Sometimes they'd try to rush the gates, and so we'd have to run after them, tackle them, and. Um, you know, that was my first, you know, in All high right. school, my guidance counselor didn't think I was college material. And I remember her saying, Michelle, <laughs> you should really find a job where you can do something with your hands. And I never knew what that meant. And I always wanted to get back to her and say, I found a job where I could use my hands. I lock people up. <laughs> yeah. And I made it through college. And I get to and I, and I get to take down gate crashers. So you got to love people who who want to limit yeah. your your yeah. future for you. You know, without giving you a shot. So yeah. much for being a guidance counselor. You know. Yeah. So you so you went from being little Miss Goody Two Shoes in school to tackling these badass people at the gates. I like that. I never knew that about you. I but I was always uh, Miss Goody Two Shoes. I just didn't like people breaking the rules. You know. If other people, there you go. <laughs> it was at the Catholic. That was came from Catholic exactly. Catholic school and Catholic training. You know, if if other people had to pay to get in, you know, you have to pay and you have to stand in line. Right. Everybody should. That's right. <laughs> there you go. And that's what we did. Yeah, did we stand in line? You know, that's. I mean, you set your standards and you live up to them. So that's that's very admirable. At a, at a very young age, you're doing that. That's great. So so you you make it. You graduate junior college. 
how did you end up at, and this is one of my favorite places to say to Bemidji, because Bemidji, not only, not only is it the home of Paul Bunyan and Babe, it's also got its own references in Fargo. Well, I, I can tell you it was a, kind of a last minute decision. Um, when I got my two-year degree, I started looking, you know, maybe going to the University of Minnesota, actually had thought about going out of state, um, but I, w- I wasn't ready to to leave Minnesota. I mean, I never thought I would leave Minnesota, actually. Um, But I had a friend who went to Bemidji, and I went up there to visit him, and school just started. It was the first week of school. And I went into, I knew that they had a criminal justice degree there, and I went in to meet the instructors to just to see, maybe next year I can go here. I sat down with it, and he was uh, a former Chicago cop. His name is Don Bradle, and he told me about it was a pretty new degree up there, and they had just started a criminal justice club, and he told me all about this. And uh, so I went home and told Mom and Dad, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know where we're going to get the money, but I have to go to Bemidji. I met a cop who's a professor who's going to teach me how to be a cop. <laughs> Cool. It used Chicago to be a Chicago cop. cop, not like there's nothing <laughs> happening in Chicago, right? Yeah. Chicago. So um, it was also an area, you know, you live in Minnesota in the summers, and we lived on a lake, but you still went away to vac- on vacation. You went up north. You went up north to one of the lakes. And uh, my dad was very fond of fishing up near Bemidji. And so he was very happy to, you know, pack my stuff up and drive me up there, you know, so he could have a little fishing trip. How far away was Bemidji from White Bear Lake? You know, it's funny because it seems like it was a day's trip. It it was probably five hours, maybe five or six. Um, It seems so far, it's such a a long drive when I think about it. But um, people will say, well, Bemidji? And by the way, the mascot for Bemidji is the beavers, and um, I got a lot of razzing about that. <laughs> but uh, I loved, I loved the the teacher. I loved the whole criminal justice club, and uh, we just had we just had uh, such a good uh, environment up there, and. Uh, I decided, okay, I didn't have enough money. I walked into the to the school, um, the people that, you know, decide whether you can get a loan or not. People had already moved into their dorms. I didn't even know if I had a place to stay. I walked in and said, I, I really want to go here. Walked in with my mom, and the guy was basically saying, well, we don't have any we don't have any uh, scholarships. We don't have anything we can give you. Um, so mom said, take a walk. And I took a walk and I came back. And here they had paperwork for me to sign out. I had a I had a job. Oh, my. Oh, what, what, oh my was God. your mom part of the mafia or what? Wow. Take a walk. Five I'm going to take care of mom, this guy. I'm sure he persuaded him into something. He, he probably, <laughs> this is my mom, he probably told her, you don't know, this is, she's going to be a police officer someday. <laughs> probably talked his ear off, uh, twisted his arm, and all of a sudden I had a, a student work uh, job. Uh, 
that was right up my alley. I took the statistics for the men's basketball team. So, oh my God, I got paid for that. I used to do that nice. for free. Now I'm getting nice. paid for it. So I I moved in. Um, I, we didn't have enough money for me to be on the meal plan. So um, I just put bologna and, you know, put uh, hot dogs and, and stuff out my window uh, that was my refrigerator during the winter, uh, and I lived on oh, wow. popcorn and tomato soup, and uh, took as many credits as I could because I never knew when the money was going to run out. And uh, graduated. Uh, I was uh, a year and a quarter up in Bemidji. You wait a minute. You did. You did. You did your last two years yeah. of college in a yeah. year and a quarter. <laughs> you overachiever. Ah, you. I was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> but it was <laughs> Miss Goody Doochu's overachiever. No, we got a new name for you. Motivated by the money's going to run out. I have to. I have to do it. <laughs> so, so what were you taking? Like twenty a, credit hours a semester, and then summer school too. I think I, not summer school, but I think it was twenty-two credits, and then I was able to. Um, I had the the greatest opportunity. Um, to take two internships, not one. I took two internships, um, one with the St. Paul Police Department during the summer of 1977, and then uh, the fall, the winter of uh, 19, uh, 1978, I was able to intern at the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Investigation. So I got to see what it would be like to be a police officer, which is my dream, maybe go into eventually investigations, which I learned from interning at the BCA. And it was perfect. You know who the most famous detective from Minnesota is, don't you? Oh, you mean what, Elliot Ness? No, Lucas Davenport, John Sanford. My wife reads those novels all the time. (laughs) I have a lot of people ask me about that. Yeah. I haven't read, haven't read that. You know, we're just we're just getting started with your life here, and this is all, already one hell of a motivational Holy cow. story. Put your, no refrigerator, so we stick our bologna and our hot dogs out on the ledge. Yeah. Wow, that's great! I, you know, and hats yeah. off to your mom. Go, mom! Whatever she did. Well, no, hats off to you, man. I remember going to college. I was in Kansas. You know, went to Fort Hayes State. By the way, my brother-in-law is the chaplain for the St. Paul Police Department now, the main chaplain. But no, I, I remember doing that too. Didn't uh, you know? Parents divorced and um, dad not in the picture at that point, and uh, had to take out student loans. And I remember the meal plan was like one meal a day. So I learned early on when McDonald's had an all-you-could-eat or Wendy Wendy's had the you know the buffet. I mean, you just loaded up and you didn't eat for two days because you were so stuffed walking out of there. Yeah, thank God, tomato soup, popcorn, and cereal. Thank goodness. Ramen noodle survived on ramen noodle and mac and cheese. <laughs> Man, so so you did this in a year and a quarter. So what was your plan? You get done in a year and a quarter. You've got your degree in criminal justice. How many places do you start? To, I mean, go ahead. How many places did you start applying? So I was ready to go. Uh, and I, you know, was under the illusion that once you get that degree, I mean, you just go. Doors and you, just open up. You, you get the world's your oyster. You test. And of course, everybody's going to want you, right? Um <laughs> but it, what, what I what wasn't prepared for was that there's very little turnover. My dream was I was going to be a St. Paul cop. There's very little turnover. Nobody retires. Nobody leaves. And so it's once in a blue moon that they have an academy and that they're actually hiring. Well, 
Also, in 1978, 1979, there were a a lot of veterans um, coming home from the war, you know, that wanted to go into law enforcement. And I was, I could make some of the lists, but I was never up high enough. You didn't get the veterans preference that they did. No. Right. I mean, in terms of points, it would elevate them above you in points, right? right? And rightly so. Believe me, the veterans deserve everything. Oh, no, I agree with you. Yeah. But, um... But you also had a second strike, too. How many females were applying for law enforcement at that time? Not many. And uh, there was a big change, though, between 78 and 80. I could see a huge change. But I but I put all my eggs in one basket, which was a mistake. And I prepared to go, uh, you know, test for the St. Paul Police Department. Having just been uh, in their academy as an intern, um, and, and, you know, that solidified it for me. I was going to be a street cop. There was no doubt. And I wanted to work for that department. But I went to take the test. And here I'm an athlete. And, you know, I was in very good shape. Um, I always, I mean, I, there was no way I was not going to pass the physical and uh, I walk into this room, and the first thing you do is you go to this machine. And the only way I can explain it is kind of like think of um, like handlebars on a bicycle. You grab the handlebar, and it's got this machine, and they say, okay, now push in. And I pushed in, and then they tell you when to stop, and then they give you a little rest, and then they tell you, okay, now push out, and I pushed out. They tell you when to stop, uh, and uh, apparently, you know, the the thing never moved. Uh, It was to measure my upper body strength. And uh, I I couldn't move it. I couldn't. There was a little little thing, little dial, and you had it. You had to move it. I never saw it move once. So I thought, oh my God, I am in trouble. And then the second one was, you know, here I, I could I could run with the guys. I could run with the boys. I you know I was always a tomboy. You had to get over the the wall. And uh, I was not prepared for that. Uh, I didn't have the technique down. And uh, I couldn't get my, you know, you get up there, you try to run up the wall and try to get your butt over. I I couldn't get it over. So I thought, oh, my God, I have just, I have failed my life's dream. What the heck am I going to do? And I, uh, I was rejected for that. So I said, oh, my God, what's my backup? I had no backup. So a friend of mine who uh, got into the police academy, um, you know, said, "Why, why all, why your eggs in one? Are your eggs in one basket, Michelle? Branch out. You don't have to stay here." I had never thought of leaving Minnesota, and uh, you know, I thought about it. I had a little pity party for a little while. I thought about waiting for two, three years until they had another test, <laughs> but uh, that wasn't going to work. <laughs> so um, I said, that's it. Okay, I'm going out of state. And uh, I apply, applied for some of the jobs that opened up in the Twin Cities and tested, and in fact, got on lists, but I was never high enough on the list to, to get called back. No one left those jobs. Did you apply to Fargo? Because I heard there's a police chief opening in Fargo. <laughs> yeah. Well, did not decide to go to Fargo. What I decided I wanted to do was 
get as much experience as possible. And you have to understand, grow, growing up in Wiper Lake, you know, going to the big city was taking a drive downtown St. Paul. And if you really went on an excursion uh, and were brave enough, you actually drove into downtown Minneapolis. I mean, that's how kind of the sheltered life I lived. Um, but I decided that's it. I went to Target. I got a, I bought a file cabinet. And then I w- went and bought a zip code book. A book that divided all the cities in the country up by zip codes and by population size. And I said, that's it. So I went down, I took the biggest cities, and I sent resumes to every city. And um, how many? Oh my God, probably about 50. And one by one. Wow. And I got the file cabinet to prepare to file all these letters that I was going to give back to say, come and test with us, right? I sense <laughs> disappointment is in your future here. <laughs> oh, and one of the first ones to go back was Los Angeles. And I I imagined myself from the TV shows being, you know, I could go to L.A. And it came back, big red stamp, you know, de, you know denied or whatever, rejected. Um, and it, it was always because of my height. And I got one from Chicago, I got one from Miami, and they rejected me because they said you had to live within the city limits. Um, So I was just getting frustrated. What was the minimum height? You said you got rejected for height. What was the minimum height and what were you at? Well, most of them were like 5'5", and there were a few that said 5'4". I was 5'3 and 3 quarters. So I just had to figure out <laughs> what I could do to become 5'4 all of a sudden. Well, I got all these, you know, about 50 uh, letters back, almost all rejection. And one day, and this was a family, a family affair. My family helped me go through these, file them, give me opinions on which city I should go to. And I, I saved my graduation money. So I had... I had money to take probably one trip. I didn't know how, where I was going to stay or how I was going to live, but I, I could I could get someplace. I didn't even know how I could get back. And uh, there was a flyer, and it was Baltimore City Police Department. Now, this is my sheltered life. I go, Baltimore, Baltimore. My backup baseball team was the Baltimore Orioles. So I think I might go to Baltimore. I opened the flyer, and here's this picture, and they got these great uniforms, and their hands, they got men and women, and their hands are kind of out in this, like, team. They got pigeons behind them. Their arms are extended. You know, it was kind of like, come be on our team, and it grabbed me. I'm like, I'm going to Baltimore. So uh, I I said, what am I going to do? My dad gave me his brand-new credit card and said, okay, I think we have enough money on this that you could stay one night. Um, I flew to Baltimore. I thought that, okay, I probably, most of these tests, you go, you get interviewed, then you come back a month later and you do the physical, and you come back a month later for another interview. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I figured I got to start somewhere. So I went to Baltimore, went in, got interviewed. I'm you know, asking, uh, when, 
when do I do the push-pull? You know, I was always worried about the push-pull. And they're like, oh, we don't have, we don't have physical requirements. And uh, I, I thought, whoa, <laughs> this is going to be easy. The hardest part for me was when I had to be 5'4". And now, so but before you get started on that, we need to put you under oath because my understanding is, for one of the few times in your life, Miss Goody Two Shoes, you may have gamed the system here a little bit, fudged just a little, fudged it. Yes. Well, I thought this is do or die, right? So not a denial I, yet. I had, not a denial. I had in the seventies. I wore a fro. Uh, I had I had a little afro that I styled uh, in you know seventy six seventy seven seventy eight. Now I could pick that thing out, and it could it could give me you know it could give me another you know half inch. You and didn't say picked yesterday. You said poofed. I poofed it out. I poofed it out. <laughs> it out. <laughs> I figured your listeners wouldn't know what poof is. Maybe they know what picked. Uh, for is. your Minnesota, you know what a poof. You know poofed. I poofed it out. Yeah. You betcha. You betcha. So. So I I did I I stood tall and I and I did poof that thing out and I stood on that thing and I just held my breath <laughs> and and I wasn't rejected I was just waiting for rejection but apparently I made it um, so I only had I only had my dad's card I can only stay in the hotel one night. They asked me to stay one more day. I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I stayed at the Greyhound bus station uh, overnight. Wait a minute. You slept in the Greyhound bus station in Baltimore? Downtown Baltimore. Uh, How did you survive? (laughs) Yeah. It was the best people watching ever. And (laughs) And I didn't sleep. And so I knew I was coming back the next day for some some sort of other test. Um, I came back and and really it was just another interview. And then they said, "When you know when can you come?" I said, "Well, when do you have an academy?" Because I figured you know maybe once every year or two. And they said, "We have academy starting every month." So uh, you wow. know, it was it was meant to be. Uh, I, I did get back home. Packed up my stuff. My mom drove me out. We put everything I owned, which was a, a water bed, my stereo, and my albums, and my bike. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's the seventies. It has to be a water bed. It, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, we, and your BG albums and Donna Summers and <laughs> and your Huffy bike. <laughs> well, Huffy was long gone by then, but um, but we we drove out to Baltimore. I had no place to stay. I didn't know anybody. Um, I just knew that this was it. This is, I'm going to be a cop. Now, was this a live-in academy? You had to spend the night there or no? No, I had to find a place to, to live, which is a whole other whole other thing. <laughs> we we pull into the outskirts of Baltimore, and it was uh, me, my mom, and a girlfriend went with me. And uh, we wondered, well, you know, why don't we just spend the night here? It looked like a cheap hotel. You know, we didn't think anything of it. <laughs> my, my that mom, wasn't Morgan's. Was that Morgan's no-tell motel you're staying in? <laughs> my mom goes in. She says, stay with the trailer. I just can't imagine all the people hanging around this cheap hotel that's rented by the hour. Was it a by-the-hour exactly. hotel? It, she comes back out. She comes back out and she says, well... Uh, 
It's cheap. It's by the hour. (laughs) (laughs) And, um... Okay. And so they say we could just park the trailer right here, but they're gonna give us they're gonna give us a room so that we can keep an eye on the trailer all night. Yeah. <laughs> so um, my mom coined it. She she always talks about. Remember when we stayed in the hot pillows joint in Baltimore? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I got to tell you, I haven't laughed this hard on a podcast. We haven't even got to the good stuff yet. This has been the most interesting backstory I think we've had. Well, I, I got to know, did you spend the night there? We spent the night, but we took turns looking at that trailer. <laughs> God forbid I lose my waterbed and my bike and my albums. My goodness. Oh, but you, so, um, so you survived your first night? I survived night and... it. I survived it. And, you know, it was, uh, it was... It was such a good experience. That is when I learned about DEA. It was actually in the academy. And uh, had it not been for Special Agent Calvin McFarland, um, who was out of the Baltimore office, he came and talked to our police academy. And I had never, I had never thought I'd have anything to do with narcotic enforcement or you know drugs. I, you know, no interest. Um, I just wanted to be in a patrol car, but he told us all about DEA. That was my first exposure to the Drug Enforcement Administration. He made was it called DEA at that time? I heard they renamed from the BNDD, yeah, Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. It was DEA at the time. We were we were you know seventy three was when DEA became oh, DEA. Changed. Yeah. Okay. So it was in the first five years. Uh, it was nineteen seventy nine. And uh, he told us about what they do and gave us a drug ID class and all that. That was my first exposure to the DEA. And that would come into play later because... um, Oh, yeah, you're going to get... We're going to talk about that in a second, but let's go back and talk about the Academy. So you show up. uh, Tell us about that first day at the Academy. What was it like being being from White Bear Lake, Go Bears, being with the Bemidji Wood Duck, (laughs) and now you are in... The oh, this is like got to be like an alien planet being in Baltimore. I, I, I <laughs> it was different. Let's let's put it that way. And um, just uh, just trying to maneuver a big city like that. And it was during the uh, remember when we had the they rationed the gas and we had gas lines. Uh, my first week, I had a little Mustang, and first week, you know, because I I didn't have any money. Uh, I was on empty on my way to the academy, and I had a pullover on a street. Um, I didn't have time to wait in the gas line, jump a city bus, and get to the academy. And uh, everything was new to me, and they uh, they started calling me Alice. And I thought it was derogatory at first, but it, it was because I, I always said, I'm in Wonderland. I said, I don't know what this is. I've never, I didn't even know what a lottery ticket was. See, that's a, you had never heard of a lottery ticket before that? No. Bingo, oh. bingo at the VFW, but I didn't know what else. Yeah. Oh, no, we won, we won. I didn't know about a lottery ticket and little things. It was just everything. Everything was great to me. I mean, it was new. Yeah, it was new. Yeah, and and if you're not familiar with the the law enforcement culture, everybody gets a nickname. Everybody yeah. gets a nickname. So, how long was your academy? Uh, I think it was uh, 
we started in July and we graduated in November. And it was the summer of uh, 1979. Um, and the academy. Which I was a freshman in college at that time. Okay. Yeah, young whippersnapper. And it was everything, everything that I wanted it to be. I mean, I learned, I learned everything. We had a lot of women in my start out in my academy class, um, and my my roommate, uh, well, my best best friend in the academy. She years later uh, came to DEA as well, and she's one of the best. Uh, Kathy Kelleher, she's one of the best uh, DEA agents I know. But wow. we had we just had a great a great summer, and then uh, my mom and dad came out and saw me graduate uh, in November, and uh, first time they had ever been on the East Coast. Where did you? You know, this is another thing I think you failed to tell us when we had our pre-call. Where did you graduate in your class? Well, I was outstanding student there in you the go. police academy, and uh-huh. so I got to uh, pick my my first. Uh, 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 place to work in Baltimore, and I picked Northwest Baltimore. Why? And um, it wasn't far from where I was living, um, and it also had. Uh, it wasn't West Baltimore. That was that was probably the roughest, but it had uh, parts of that. And when you look, when I look back, I mean, all of Baltimore was rough, right? Mm-hmm. That's a tough um, town. But I heard good things about the Northwest District, and uh, so I picked the Northwest, and I started up there and loved it. I mean, you you rode around with uh, people for about a week, and then you, you were in your own squad. Um, I had my own—in Baltimore, they call them posts, and I had my own—615 was the post— um, and that was the start start of uh, my dream job. So you're on patrol and you're answering radio calls. That was your responsibilities at that point? Yep, exactly. And, you know, Baltimore was so crime infested that our posts were not very big. I mean, I could I could get out of my squad car and probably run my whole post. But um, I had on my post, I had a hospital. I had a shopping mall. I had a big park. And then I had a residential area. And uh, it was it was it was busy. The Northwest District is, like I said, it was crime infested, which to me was great because <laughs> you you would learn. And I quickly learned that every crime that's committed has something to do with drugs. And every call I had, whether it was a domestic or whether you know you had to arrest somebody because they stole something. Um, fights, no matter what, it had, it came down to drugs. So do you remember the first time you got to go light and siren in a police car? Well, this is the thing about Baltimore. Um, we didn't even have sirens uh, because sirens what? would, no, in Baltimore, we had blue blue lights too instead right, of the blue red lights. lights. Yeah. We had blue lights. This is amazing to me. You know, where's the lights and siren? Well, there are no sirens in Baltimore. The cars don't have sirens. You'd have sirens going off twenty four seven. Yeah. Wow. So you did, you didn't have them. You just no would throw that blue light on and go. 
Oh my! So, so there, I never knew that. I mean, I've yeah. been around law enforcement. I never knew that. Yeah. No sirens in Baltimore. Well, that stands to reason is that you'd, you'd, people would be pissed off. They'd be up all night long. Here comes a siren again. Yeah. yeah. And it, so what? What was the first major call you remember going on? The first really? I mean, not just a shoplifting, but the first like shooting or robbery or you know homicide or something like that. Well, the the first serious one to me was actually um, a dead body, and uh, I didn't. I did, you know, a dead body. I didn't know. Uh, it was a Had call. you ever seen a dead body prior no, to this? No. It was a call for dead body. Um, and I responded. And there was no, I, I, I was first one there. And uh, I was led in by a landlord. And it was a guy up in a, in a little, he had his own room in this tenement house. And uh, I, I wasn't sure what it was. And um, it ended up being it was a suicide. How long had and, you been there? Uh, quite a while. And the reason the landlord called was the neighbors were complaining about the stink. About the smell. Oh, yeah. And oh. so that's when I learned what a stinker was. <laughs> we used to call them stinkers. And I learned that what you had to do is when you got home, you had to... Uh, uh, put your uniform, wash your clothes, you had to yeah. wash them. And then after you wash them, you actually have to put them in the freezer, um, wrap them in newspaper, put them in the freezer. I learned all these ways to get rid of that, that smell. Uh, um, and that's but, the bad. When I went to a couple autopsies, I learned a lesson really quick too, is that you take the mentholatum or other stuff, yeah, you put it below put your, nose your nose and put the mask on it. Cause yeah, it just, I was a wuss on that kind of stuff, but you know. Oh, it's, it's horrible. There's nothing being yeah. a wuss about that. that the smell uh, is, is just one of a kind. I, I don't know how the forensic pathologists and the lab techs do that. Cause they would just do that, you know, day after day. But, um, so you go, so. We had a lot so of guys you, that would carry cigars in their briefcase and they'd fire up a cigar to help everybody out. Well, Murphy's body odor used to just basically wipe out all the other smells. So <laughs> the West Virginia kids saw a shower gonna, once a week. I'm going to get a mute button on here, and I'm going to mute you when you're talking. I, about remember, that. I run the show. I, ha- I have the mute. I have the control over everything. So, uh, so Michelle, so that's like your first call. So, how long? So you, you talked about um, you talked about gaming the system. You cheated to get your way in, Mrs. Betty Two Shoes. You poofed your hair. Now, now you're working the streets. How long are you working the streets before you run into your your raison d'être? Your reason for joining DT, DEA? Because I thought that was a funny story. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I wasn't I wasn't on the streets that long. It seems like it was like a whole career on the streets uh, of Baltimore because there was um, so much going on and. I had friends that became police officers in Minnesota and other places, and and I would tell them about, you know, our normal calls, uh, especially if you worked like 4 to 12 and you were, it was a weekend, you know, you didn't do anything but answer felony calls. I mean, there was none of this, uh, uh, I, I Barking think, dog, yeah. parking complaint speeders. Someone, someone sold my TV. I mean, you didn't do anything like that. It was... Yeah, you called the 911 center, say, somebody took my bike, they fall off their chair laughing. You kidding me? Get out of here. It was all felony <laughs> calls. But it was very, very quick. I started to meet DEA people um, because DEA agents and Baltimore City Task Force officers that worked with DEA would show up all the time uh, on my post to do search warrants, uh, you know, they would find out when I was working, I'd say, oh, I'm on the midnight shift. And so about five in the morning, they would say, okay, come on out, we're going to do a raid. And 
I thought of Calvin McFarlane, who was the first person I met from DEA and how much he loved his job. And then I saw firsthand um, I would be called to the to the residents, that would be the u- uniform presence so that they knew someone wasn't breaking in. I was in full uniform and just talking to the DEA guys and they would, they loved their job. Um, heck, they got to wear jeans and drive fancy cars and, you know, and they were always locking up, you know, the, the, the drug dealers, the people's, you know, slinging poison on the street. I just thought that's really that's really interesting. I I need to look into that. <laughs> and uh you know, I I wasn't I wasn't on patrol very long until, you know, it clicked that okay, all this crime, all these family breakups, everything has to do comes back to drug abuse and uh how can I make the biggest impact? And it was really well, maybe I want to investigate drug dealers and take drugs off the street. Maybe I do want to look into DEA. I was kind of on the fence. Didn't know if I was ready to to make that move or not. You know, I was just, things were still pretty new to me and I was learning. Um, but it took one guy to get you over the edge. It took one <laughs> it took guy. One, one incident to get me over the edge. Um, oh, oh, this is classic too, because I've never heard this before. <laughs> so tell us, tell us about your little <laughs> encounter with the, the 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 dude who propelled you on this DEA career. So, you know, I was I was toying with it for I would say a couple months about whether I should, if 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 it was time for me to look into maybe going to DEA. Um, I just hadn't made my mind up. I pulled in after working a shift, pulled in to a gas station. I was still in full uniform, had my personal car and filled up with gas. Um, I had a jacket or a sweater on, but I'm filling up for gas. And this guy pulls up and approaches me and he wants to sell me weed. (laughs) You're in uniform with just a jacket on. It's like you got, the, you got the gun hanging out. You got yep. the other stuff, right? The whole thing. I'm a Baltimore <laughs> City police officer. And at first, I, you know, you start looking for the cameras. Am yeah. I on candid camera yeah, or what? Is this a setup? Is this a setup? <laughs> yeah. But he was the real deal. And uh, I, I just, I was just, I couldn't believe it. And he hands me a business card. And it, and it says, a friend with weed is a friend indeed. <laughs> <laughs> what did he have a pay? Was that? Did they have pagers at that time, or how are no, you supposed to get a no, hold of him? No, this is way. This is way before pagers. So, okay. this is a business card with a phone number, which I ended up turning over to the um, detectives that were. You didn't make. You didn't make a hand to hand buy that night and <laughs> take the guy down. <laughs> No, I, I was I I was sure that there's something wrong with this. But, yeah, um, that guy was a real op- entrepreneur, wasn't he? Holy <laughs> yeah. cow! His own business cards. Yeah, uh, but but that was it. So then driving home that night, uh, I said, "That's it. I'm I'm going to check this out." And I never looked back. It was the best decision ever. What was the process you went through from there? How did you How did you end up applying and getting accepted at DEA after that? So the the guys from DEA that I knew, you know, told me, yeah, just make a make a an appointment to go down and see the guy handling recruitment, and uh, went down, filled the paperwork out, um, 
I knew that they were always always worried about having these hiring freezes because I would hear about that. And they said, get your paperwork in right now. Uh, we think there's going to be a hiring freeze. So that sped me up with the paperwork. And uh, a few what months year, later. What year, was, what year was this, Michelle? Ni- 1980. So you'd only been on Baltimore City two years before yeah, you just, applied. Just under two years is when I started, when I applied. And um, then I got a call from from an agent who later I ended up working with, Gene Crosby from Minneapolis, and he was doing my background investigation. And wow. oh, the Minnesota Mafia gets involved now yeah. to make sure yeah. you get a job. Oh, yeah. we got this. Yeah. He, he called and he said, we're rushing it through because they want to get you in the academy. And I said, well, when's the academy? And they, he said, January. Well, that's only a few months away. So, um, long story short, uh, I hired on in with DEA December twenty eighth, uh, nineteen eighty. The first week of January, I was in the academy. And where was and that? That was uh, Baltimore City, uh, uh, in um, Washington D.C. And it was the last class that went through the DEA headquarters on 14th and I. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. It was BA class 17. Um, And there were were a handful of us that were from Baltimore that were in the class. But I, I hired on and... The rest is history. Oh, I we, just... don't, we won't talk about that history. Yeah. And so folks may wonder why we're spending a little bit more time. Well, first of all, uh, we've talked to one other uh, female police officer. Uh, Pam Barnum was an OPP undercover officer. And her story was interesting, too. But, you know, the thing is, during your time, too, Michelle, I went through the police academy in 82 and the state patrol academy in 84. But when I went through in 84, Jackie Railton was a uh, female in our class, one of only the third female hired in the 50 years. At that point of the highway patrol, I remember the other two, Suzanne Evinger and Jan Lamb. And it's so, it's so, so it was like, it was not that it was different for guy cops, you know, to see a female in the uniform, but I'll tell you what, it was really strange is when you're out there and, you know, most of these folks weren't used to, especially in these areas that were all male dominated, never seen a female cop before, you mm-hmm. know, had never seen you show up and they look at you and they go, I remember this too going, you're a trooper. You know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, got the badge, the uniform, maybe that gave it away there, Skippy. I mean, you're smart, you know, nothing gets by you. But how was it when you started in Baltimore? Let me kind of, the reason I'm saying we want to spend a little time, because we want people to understand what you went through to get to where you were. It wasn't easy. Um, but, you know, when you when you were in Baltimore, how were you treated? And, and just be candid. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I can tell you there were guys that I used to work with, because I grew up, like I said, with just my mom and two sisters. I was always sensitized to being around women. And I know there are some guys who just, I don't want to skirt around here. We don't need mm-hmm. this. You know, mm-hmm. what kind of what kind of crap did you have to put up with initially? Well, I knew I knew that there would be skeptics because I always I always got that how you know, how are you gonna chase a guy down the street and catch him and how are you gonna do this and that? You know, it was always about um, you know, I was I was slender, petite, thin. It was always about that. Um so I knew going into it, just like in the academy, I just I just had to show that I could do the job. Uh, it was rough at first. Um, I had a sergeant who, to this day, I love. Um, I'm 
actually now very glad that he was so hard on me. Uh, he would tell me once a week, he would call me, you know, to pull over on a certain street and meet him. And he'd pull up and he'd say, it's my job to make sure that you don't stay on this job. You weren't meant to be on this job. He would give me that kind of What is this, <laughs> reverse motivation speech or what? <laughs> he would give me that feedback. Oh. And um, this went on and on for at least the first the first month. I think it was a test. Well, I wasn't going to go anywhere. And I had, I got to tell you, I had, I had men on that police department that worked with me on my shift that trusted me right from the start. And I had some that didn't. And uh, I knew, I knew right away some, something was going on because my name, instead of Michelle, my name became Mike. I I was called Mike and I, and I wasn't really sure what that was all about. I later find out uh, that they couldn't go home and tell their wives that, that they were mo- working <laughs> with a female <laughs> on the shift. So they would go home and say, oh, I had a call with Mike. Or, you know, Mike and I arrested, you know, that's how I became Mike. And I, you know, my sergeant, again, he... Um, he would say, well, you know, we, we need to get you in a fight. He, he was like finding fights for me to be, and he thought that that would be what would make me quit. But I, I was never going to quit. I worked too hard to get here. I was going to do whatever it took. My God, you ate hot dogs and bologna and stuff, yeah. stuff out on your ledge. You're not quitting now. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not quitting. I'm not going anywhere. And, um, I I, t- I give it to those guys that really took a leap of faith, and they just you know e- even the ones that were skeptical and that I could tell the little snide comments, mm-hmm. I I could tell they they weren't with it, didn't believe that a a woman bl- belong belonged on the job. But I wasn't the first female in that district. There was a, a female officer that came came before me and she did a good job. So I thank her because I think that that did help. But it was it, it was a rough first maybe three or four months. Um, and I, I remember I wasn't invited to some of the shift change parties because I was Mike and they hadn't really spilled the beans about, you know, that they're working with a, a woman. Um, so I, I started to see that change, and then I was invited to parties, and the beans were spilled, and then the wives told me how when they suspected something, the guys would come home and talk about Mike. <laughs> they, they talked they a little too fondly about Mike, you know? They suspected something, and a couple of them admitted that they went out and bought police scanners, and that's how they found out I was a woman. Really? Oh, my yeah. good! Oh, the little girl's investigation club comes to Baltimore. <laughs> well, now, didn't your name, didn't your nickname of Mike change to something different? Oh, Oh yeah. So I get there in the Northwest <laughs> District, and I was na- I was Mike. And uh, one of the things I learned is that I loved getting out of my car, and I loved, you know, there there were these old men that would stand outside of this liquor store all the time. I mean, they were on the street morning, noon, you know, night, always. And I would just, I would just get out of the car and go and talk to them. I got to know everybody 
just everybody by just talking to them and especially the young people. I would I played basketball in college. I would I would shoot hoops with uh, with the kids playing on the playground, and pretty soon, all of those kids and all those young adults they turned into the best snitches that you could ever imagine. Something would happen on my post, I guarantee you, I'd be flagged down a little bit later by you know one of the kids, and they would tell me who just burglarized the whatever, uh-huh. <laughs> and so. I, uh, they called me Mike as well. And, uh, they would always talk about, you know, the little girl, I was the little girl cop. And so Mike, all of a sudden, by the time I left, Mike had turned into Mikey, the mighty midget. (laughs) And I would ask the guys, you know, they'd be sitting there rolling their dice and everything, you know, and I'd be, they'd be talking to me and they'd say, we heard you did this and that. They would tell me stories like, I heard you threw this guy out a second story window and arrested him. And I heard you did this. And I, I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I know for a fact, because I watched Narcos, Murphy threw somebody out of the helicopter, didn't you, Murphy? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, when those opportunities present themselves. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I went from being Mike to Mikey the Mighty Midget. And uh, how did the wives treat you after after everybody found out and they started working with you? Did they view you as a threat to begin with or did they, they come around to being one of the gang? They were very skeptical at first, but then I, I was invited to the parties, and I I think they could see that I just wanted to be a good cop. Yeah, yeah. And and you know I had I had such a good lieutenant, and his name was Christensen, and he was from Minnesota. Oh, there we go. The mafia and, strikes again. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I just I just loved him, and. Another sergeant, Irv Fry, who's no longer with us, and they—they they were just great to learn from. Uh, and it was really hard when I told them that I was leaving. Um, but you know, I did have my first fight, and my sergeant, who always told me that he had to talk me out of being on the job, uh, he wasn't there for it. He spent weeks telling me how, you know, I needed to be in a fight so I could see if I was, I could really do the job. And the night I was really in a fight, he wasn't there. He was, he was off that day. And so he, you know, told me he was pretty proud of me. And I knew that I turned the corner with him. Yeah. Yeah. And to the point where when I, when I left, I mean, he was, he was in tears. So Baltimore Baltimore, which could have been disastrous, Baltimore ended up being one of the best experiences of my life. Yeah, but it's and brought me to DEA. But you made it. You had a lot to do with making it that way. You know, I mean, you get the credit for that because you hung in there. And it's here's a female coming into a, a traditionally male-dominated career occupation. You know, you're out there where you actually got your life on the line. Um, every agency, you know, DEA was my third agency. Every agency I worked with, you had to prove yourself to the other people there, you know, that you could earn their respect and their trust. And you hung in there and did that at five yeah. foot three, five foot three and three quarters <laughs> inches. But poofed it out, it became five foot four, eh? So there you go. But I used to tell you, no, I, will, you I will tell you, there were a couple of times I used to measure the way I would say whether I wanted to work with you or not is 
if I was getting my ass kicked, did you hop in the fight and get your ass kicked with me? You know, did you jump in? And I will tell you, there were, a, I won't mention who they are and what agency, but there were a couple of times there were guys that just kind of hung around and I'm like, get in the game here, fellas. And it took a female officer showing up and just, I, I will tell you, it's just, I didn't care. I didn't care about you, sex race, what, whatever. All I cared about, if you were blue, you had a badge, if you got in the fight with me, I would do the same thing for you. And that's, that. like you say, that's the measure of respect is that you're willing to do everything that it takes. And that's exactly what you did. I mean, even the... <laughs> <laughs> I tell I tell you what guy I tell you you do you were doing community policing before people knew really I think what community policing was <laughs> right. and it was just that so did Miss Goody Two Shoes did you drink in college before you got to Baltimore or when did you start drinking I you know what I was uh, I dropped my girlfriends that smoke cigarettes I would say if you're going to hang around with me you're not going to smoke and uh, I was in college when I had my first sip of alcohol, and I really didn't. I really didn't drink until after, um, until I was older. And I, to this day, I really still don't drink. And I, the the joke was, you know, I was a partier. I went to parties. I I was the dancer. You know, the '70s music, the whole thing. And people would say, "But you don't drink," and I would always say. But I have my seven up. <laughs> it was it was just uh, I I just didn't uh, I didn't want to not be in control of myself, you know, and I just didn't. I was happy without it. I still don't understand what good does any of that do? Right. Yeah, and you, you know, isn't life great without it? You felt a whole lot better the next morning than everybody else also. <laughs> I was one in high school who had to go around and drop my friends off pu- when they were puking because they went to Wisconsin to have a few beers. See, there's another, we want to yeah. get into the cheeseheads in Wisconsin. You know, there's a whole nother group of, <laughs> hey, well, look, real quickly, tell us about the academy. When you went there, how many, if you remember, how many people in the class, how many were female? I think that, I think that we started with about, 40 in the class. And I think there was supposed to be eight women in our DEA class. I think six showed up. And by the end of it, only four of us graduated. What was the reason, you know, that they dropped out? Or what was the reason other people would drop out? Would it be grades or shooting or physical fitness? (laughs) You know, Steve will relate to this. This This is what happens. At DEA, you're in the academy, you go to lunch, you come back, and all of a sudden, someone's nameplate is gone, and the and the the desks. <laughs> you're in a different seat. You're moved over. Someone has been kicked out, and um, that that happened to a couple of the women. Um, I would say it was more if you looked if you looked at it. Not everybody had police experience. Um, uh, I I was so glad that I had that experience, but I really think that they probably weren't. It wasn't the job they thought that they were signing up for. So what they thought it was going to yeah. be and what it ended up being were two different yeah. things. Yeah, you know, we had a guy. We had a guy start our academy, Michelle, and I was in I was in BA fifty three, so I came on in eighty seven with DEA, and this guy, big, tall, strapping, good looking guy, real muscular, extremely intelligent. He was a chemist from education, you know. Or, and of course, everybody's asking a chemist, "What the heck are you doing here as a cop?" He lasted about two weeks, and then we same thing. We come to class after lunch one day, and he's gone. 
And you get back to the dorm, and his clothes are gone. It's like, what happened to what I can't even remember his name now? He did not know that we actually carried weapons as DEA agents and might be called on to use them. It's like, dude, you're so smart. And he was acing the test, the the PT. He was going to be the number one guy in the PT. I mean, he was just squared away, but had not a clue what it, being a DEA agent was. Well, that that just shows you he wasn't going to be a good investigator if you can't spot the obvious there. Oh, my you know. gosh. Yeah. <laughs> So how long was your academy? Uh, I think 16 weeks at the time. What's the what's the best part about the academy you liked? Oh my god, I loved everything about the academy. Um I was I was one sad when when the academy was over because I loved really? the academy. You are a different kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um I, I uh, what I loved was it was taught every every class was taught by a DEA agent who had been out in the street and had done the job. And there were some characters and, you know, I just, I just knew as we got through the Academy and I met more and more of them, like John and Draco and all, all these, you know, icons within uh, DEA. When you look over our history, um, I just, I got, I got, I got so so more relaxed about what the job was about by hearing their real life experiences, and uh, you know I I I I think very fondly of them, and uh, you know the physical fitness part that that was that was that was hard. That's you know pushing you, and you know it took me forever to be able to do you know my push ups and all that. Uh, did Eden. they have the push in and pull no, out? No, they didn't. I never saw that. I never saw that machine again. Thank goodness. Oh, I've never even heard of that machine. <laughs> oh my God! Neither have I. I never saw that again. Um, but but I loved. I just loved DEA. I loved the mission. I mean, if if you just if you just kept your eye on the wonderful things that you you were going to be able to do for your community for your country. You know, it was just, I was blessed with this job, and every day I loved it. And um, I, at graduation, I got my badge from Peter Benzinger, one of my favorite DEA administrators, and I never thought that I would someday be Peter Benzinger. I would someday be the administrator, but he, uh, the night before graduation, he met my mom. My mom is my best friend, if you can't tell. Um, he met my mom, and he told her... Of course, any mom who stays with you in a hotel that's a by the hour has <laughs> got to be a good friend. <laughs> She's exactly. a tough lady. Exactly. Tough lady there. But he, he told her, your daughter is going places. And uh, my mom always remembered that, always thought of him fondly. And he, to this day, he always tells me that story about telling that to my mom. But nice. uh, but at, at graduation, I never I never thought I was going to be anything but just a good agent. Work the street. So how did you go about? Because we've talked with Steve and Javier when I did a whole series of episodes with them. We've talked to a couple other DEA agents. Um, how did you go about finding out your first post? You know, where were you going to go for the first time? Did you get to pick? Was it a surprise? How did it work back in your class? Okay, back in the day, it's probably a little bit different than when Steve went through, but. Since we were going to be the last academy that they had for a while, 
And little did we know, but the works were in that we might be merging with the FBI. Um, I found oh, that sacra out bleu. after. Certainly a, such a tragedy shall not ever happen. Yeah, I, fu- I found that after that a lot of things were done thinking that that might be the case. Um, but you had a couple choices. So in the academy, I don't know, in week six maybe or something, you you they tell you here's what you can put in for. Here are the offices open. In my class, you either got to put Washington, New York, Miami, or Los Angeles. That's that was pretty much it. And you were going to one of those. And in fact, they told our class that the majority would be going to Miami because this was the start of the, you know, cocaine cowboys. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is back when Coke is starting to flood South Florida. Well, we did a whole interview with George Young, and that's exactly what we talked about when he started getting involved in trafficking the cocaine, you know, in the early 80s and stuff and coming in, everything coming into Miami. Yeah, that was the, that started to be quite the heyday. So, you know, the list came, so there were only those choices. So what do you do? I didn't, I had already experienced Baltimore and I didn't want to stay in Washington, D.C. Everything was happening in Florida. So it was a no brainer. I put Miami was my number one choice. And I don't remember what the others, it was probably Miami, New York, D.C. I didn't, I didn't put L.A. down. I never thought I wanted to, you know. Well, especially after they disrespected <laughs> exactly. you and not accepted your application. <laughs> the heck with them. But uh, so I thought I was going to Miami. And when they do this ritual where they, you know, you're there and they they tell you, you know, you're sitting there just dying to find out where you're going. And then they read your name and where you're going. And I was going to Miami and they say my hair poofed automatically. I was, everybody <laughs> knew that I, I was so happy that I was going to Miami. You were going to be five, five in Miami, weren't you? I, I, I was going to Miami and I, <laughs> I didn't know where I was going to live. I didn't, I just knew I was going to do great cases. Well, the nice thing about moving to Miami, it's much warmer down there. If you had to sleep in the bus station, you wouldn't have needed a blanket. So. <laughs> Yeah, so most of the class, you know, New York, between New York and Miami, a few went to L.A., um, and I was satisfied with it until graduation day. <laughs> yeah, so now here's something else you failed to tell us during the pre-call. <laughs> yes. What happened yes. on graduation day? <laughs> so graduation day, it was always, if you're first in your class, you get to pick your where you want to go. And... uh I never, I mean, I was happy with Miami. There were so many good, good agents in my academy class that I wouldn't even think that I was going to be, you know, the top. But uh, they, so at graduation, they announced, and there were two of us, we were, we split it. Um, Larry Sprout, one of the best agents DEA has ever hired and myself were named the outstanding students. So we got to pick our duty post. So I remember my class counselor coming up to me, uh, class advisor coming up to me, and he said, but you're still, congratulations on that, Michelle, but you're still going to Miami, right? Because they knew how excited I was. And I looked at him, I said, well, I think I'm going to Minneapolis. And he was pissed. He was like, what? Really? 
And I said, sometimes it's better to be a, a, a big fish in a little pool or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> big fish in a little school. And and because it was Minneapolis was a small office and compared to Miami where all the action was. And uh, I just thought that might be my only chance in life to go back and clean up, you know, Minnesota, take drugs off the street, help kids in Minnesota. Um, so I picked Minnesota and never regretted it. Got to go there as my first post. Did you ever go work with St. Paul PD so you could show them that damn push-pull didn't matter? Oh, let me tell you, I, I worked with some of the, the best officers from St. Paul, you know, uh, worked with us in our task force. And, um, yeah, uh, and then it, it didn't even bother me that I wasn't a St. Paul cop because I had cred. I, I had been a Baltimore cop. <laughs> Well, you know? uh, you'd seen more felonies in one night yeah. than some guys might see for six months. A absolutely. Or their, or their whole career. A absolutely. But it was, it, was, it was great to go back. It was not a hard decision. And I figured, I have the rest of my career to go to Miami. <laughs> yeah, you can always go to Miami and join Murph down there and, you know... You know, get a suntan. You got you got sunburned to move. Or if you were on you were on light duty for six months after you got down there because you were sunburned so bad. That's yeah. That's <laughs> that that English Irish heritage. So when you when you got so when you got to Minneapolis, you know I know there's a lot of things, but a lot of people think there wasn't a lot going on in Minneapolis. But you talked about a real interesting case. So before we get into it, let's set the context. What when you go up there? What were the big problems in Minneapolis? What kind of things was the office looking at up there? when your task force was going out, what kind of things were you working on? What were the big problems DEA was interested in uh, in the Minnesota area? Well, when I got to Minneapolis, almost every case was a cocaine case. All the sources were, you know, it was all coming out of South Florida. Um, there was, you know, some heroin cases, uh, but but not not so much. I think in the five years that I was in Minneapolis, almost every case I opened up was a was a coke case. Although, anything from a from northern across the border up north? Anything from Canada coming in that were causing problems? Now Canada was interesting. Canada was more the the marijuana back and forth. Um, so not as much uh, with Canada. Uh, we worked with the RCMP all the time. They would come down because a lot of their sources for cocaine were in Minnesota, were in Minneapolis. Um, but I just can't wait to hear an RCMP officer and somebody from Minnesota talking. Hey, you know we were up there at Red Deer Lake. Hey, oh yeah, for sure. Don't you know uh, this would this would have been an interesting conversation. <laughs> well, we always you know we would celebrate when the when the Mounties would come down because. My my boss, the greatest boss in the world, Jim Brasset, he was my, my rack, my resident, resident, resident agent in charge. Uh, he loved the Mounties. So it meant when the Mounties came down, we were going to do good cases, but we were also going to, you know, have some fun and uh, because they can drink. I went to a school with a guy from RCMP, Red Deer Lake, Alberta detachment up there. Couldn't hold a candle to this dude. Yeah. Yeah. And then they would bring my bosses, you know, fishing up in Canada. So they, they had this love fest, you know. Uh, our office, DEA, and the RCMP, we, we had all, all these great uh, events going on. And uh, we did good cases together. 
But it was Minnesota was just the perfect fit because I, I guess I thought, okay, I will stay here. I'll learn the job, learn to be a good agent here, and eventually maybe do something. Maybe go to Miami. Maybe you know go to a big city at some point. Um, but I was, I was surprised when I was talking to my classmates who had been in those big cities. I actually was doing more in Minneapolis than a lot of them were, because they had they had senior agents. Mm-hmm. Um, they were kind of hey, we were the Gophers. We were supposed to be the Gophers. Your young agents, you're supposed to, you know, help your senior partner. Yeah, when I got, pay your dues. Yeah, you pay your dues. When I got to Minneapolis, though, so it was just the environment set by Jim Brasseth, uh, just the best environment for me. Um, and I, I talk about <laughs> often with my friends, we talk about my first day in the Minneapolis office because, you know, I went out and bought a brand new suit. I had my little briefcase, brand new briefcase. <laughs> I, I was ready. You know, uh, offices were supposed to. It's almost like going back to Catholic school. You've yeah. got your uniform. You're ready to go. I was ready. Yeah. I had to make, make a good impression, you know. Get there, okay. The office opens at eight. Okay, I need to be there at seven forty-five, and uh, I get there, and nobody's there. There's nobody <laughs> there. Get in. <laughs> and I'm thinking, do I have the wrong office or what? So finally, finally, someone comes and opens up the office, and it's a secretary, one of the secretaries. And she welcomes me in and tells me, here's your desk. And I probably sat there for two hours before anybody came in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm waiting and waiting. And uh, in walks the boss, uh, Jim Brasseth. He comes over, introduces me. You know, I put out my my hand. And no, he, he hugs me right away. And he says, you need to go home and change. <laughs> and I went, what? And he goes, we got a picnic today. <laughs> we have liaison. <laughs> we, uh, so- and that was for you folks that can't see that she had air quotes with yeah. her fingers around the word liaison. <laughs> we had liaison. Well, little did I know that periodically in Minneapolis, especially when the, the weather's getting nice, and I think I arrived there in May. Uh, we would go out to the park, and we would have cookouts, play volleyball, and everybody, DEA, FBI, ATF, the marshals, uh, probation and parole, uh, judges, magistrates, everybody would go to it. Well, my first day there happened to be one of those days. So he said, you need to go home and change. You're going to a picnic. Okay, so that was that was my first day, perfect day to meet everybody and learned immediately it's all about relationships. It's all about relationships, and That's he right. was the best at at forging those relationships. I used to tell my kids, it's not what you know, it's who you know, and it's not who you know, it's who I know. It's all about you know re- the ability to pick up the phone and make a call. So. Your first big case was saying, hey, you don't have to store hot dogs out on a ledge to actually cook them, do you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, how, many, how many agents were in the Minneapolis office? At that so, time? you know, I was thinking about that the other day, and um, there, were, there were probably about eight 
seven or eight agents, and then we had uh, five or six task force officers, and they were all sergeants from the Minneapolis uh, Police Department. Yeah, and so we tight knit group. Yeah, yeah, very tight knit, and we kind of separated into two. And I was with the um, I was with the task force officers. They became my first partners. But we all, everybody, everybody worked together, and it was quickly everybody had a case, and everybody wanted me to be the undercover. <laughs> oh yeah, does that? You didn't have to go by Mike though. You could actually go by Michelle this time, I, I was, right? I was I was Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, well, let's let's speak of that. I mean, you're getting pulled on to the other cases, but we were talking, you know, on our pre-call about one of your most memorable cases, your favorite cases, and that was Casey Ramirez. So yes. let's talk about, because this floored me. I didn't know this was going on in Minnesota. So why don't you lay the groundwork for how this case got started, how you got into it, you know, and, and then let's dig into the details. Well, it's still today is probably my favorite case. Um at that same picnic, uh, when uh, Jim Brasseth, you know, tells me to go home and change, and at the picnic he introduces me to everybody and introduces me to basically my new partners. Um, he says to me, "You want to meet a millionaire?" And I didn't know what he meant by that. And, he thought he was trying to set you up, fix you up, uh, didn't you? Do I want to meet a millionaire? <laughs> what? I was single. Is, he, is that what he's talking about? And uh, he starts laughing. He goes, we got a case, and you're going to love it. They had just gotten information about this guy. They called him the, bene- you know, the generous benefactor who arrived in a little farm town uh, north of the Twin Cities, Princeton, Minnesota. It's this guy. He was Puerto Rican. And he claimed, uh, it depends on what day you talk to him, he would claim that he owned patents for this and that. He claimed that he invented the Siloom light stick that they used to put down on runways, um, you know, the smugglers used to use. Um, He said he had something to do with computers, even before we ever even had computers in the office. Um, He had all these reasons that he was rich. But he started buying uniforms for the hockey team, and he started uh, buying, you know, band uniforms, and he started started uh, giving the police department all these Volkswagens. And when we said, "What self-respecting cop drives yeah. a Volkswagen exactly. around?" And, what? and in Minnesota, you know, you have a Volkswagen; it's not going to start in the winter. Um, yeah. So. We started looking into it, and um, we we had some people that that you know the antennas were up that this guy is really we don't know what he is. He's like a con man. We're not sure where his so money. So when comes you said from. you got information, you mean did you have? I, I, maybe I missed this. Did you say you had a source, or were there just enough people saying, "Hey, Something's what's a dude right. doing up here spending all this kind of money?" We never had. How a, did that? We never had a source that told us he's a drug dealer. We had some people that were starting to pay attention to the money that he was bringing into this little town. And so we got it into this case in the very beginning, really to check it out, to find out what was going on. And so I think it was my my the first month I was in the office, um, I was up at a air show in Princeton, uh, uh, looking for this guy because he was putting on this big air show and he had all these planes um, 
and we found out we took pictures, so we got the the end numbers of all the all the planes. He owned them, and they were Cessnas, and he bought the municipal airport. He extended the runway. He bought all these hangars. It just nothing nothing was two and two weren't adding up with him. Um, so I actually went undercover and was introduced to him and. Um, Pretty early on in the case, you know, I, I was the idea was I was I was going to show up in Princeton and I was going to be, you know, if he ever got into what what who who I was, um, I was I was going to be a drug courier. Um, I was going to offer my services. So I met him a few times. I was able to get up there. We were able to identify properties that he was buying up. Um, you know, there's a there's a the great story about his best friend was the mayor, and the mayor goes out of town for a convention, comes back, and there's a pool in his backyard. Um, Casey would plant palm trees uh, at the police department, and he at city hall, and he would buy them all these Volkswagens. So it's just good old-fashioned police work. Besides being undercover with them, I, I was with my partner, who was Minneapolis uh, police sergeant, and our third partner, who was an IRS agent. We just started looking at everything. We started digging into the money. We wanted to find out, you know, is this guy for real or is there something here? He was in our database, and he was in our databases for something connected to drugs, but um, we had our suspicions with all the planes. And then uh, when he became best friends with people working at the credit union, and they would tell stories about him coming in with bags of cash, they'd close down the Princeton credit union, and they'd put up uh, freezer paper on the windows and count his money for two days. Wow. Then we knew. <laughs> we knew wow. what he was. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. So, well, you know, and you mentioned having a, an IRS agent assigned to you. That, what a benefit having key. one of those people assigned well, to you. Well, I, I disagree for just a moment on that for there for a second. We were working a case with an IRS agent, and you know the one thing? They'll tell you, you know, we give them a lot of information, but you know the one thing they will never, ever do? What? Give you any, give you any taxpayer information. At least they wouldn't us. And you know what their philosophy was? As long as they've paid their taxes on their ill-gotten gains, we're not interested in them. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you didn't work with the right IRS agent. Uh, maybe not. Well, Marty McCormick, good guy, but it was like, but we we're doing surveillance one night, and it's like, Marty, quit driving in front of the Target's house in a green Mercury Crown Vic with tinted windows. <laughs> yeah. Just stop doing it. Well, now they won't. They will not give you the tax returns, but they certainly have access to information, and they can guide you in the right direction. Yes, they can. Yep. Well, the best part is we um, we opened up a grand jury investigation. So we were getting everything we needed uh, with grand jury subpoenas. But uh, what a combination to have this, um, probably one of the best cops I ever met, seasoned sergeant of the Minneapolis Police Department who um, had a passion for for the job that pretty much matched mine, um, would, you know, we just became addicted to the case. Um, our IRS agent was fantastic. In fact, he brought us resources that we didn't, you know, we didn't have. Um, 
And we just started digging, digging, digging. We put everything together. I was still trying to go undercover with them. And one day, uh, this is... uh, this is like it just happened yesterday. Um, I'm getting off the elevator in the federal building, going to lunch with a couple of the other agents. And who is standing there at the elevator when I got off in the federal building is the, the crook, Casey Ramirez. And and I thought, oh, my God, it's he, he he's he, he it, it's done. So the agents were smart enough. They they went one way. I went another way, and uh, he kind of kind of followed me. I just you know kind of didn't want to talk, and um, he, he kept following me. So he asked, "What are you doing here?" And I came up with something. Uh, I figured he could see what floor we came from. Um, on the fourth floor of the federal building where DEA is, is also federal probation. So I turned to him and I started crying and I said, I'm on probation. <laughs> oh my God, Miss Goody Two Shoes on probation. Oh, you had to stretch for that one. You've never been in trouble in your life. I said, on probation, I really didn't know what it was. I didn't know what I was carrying. And, uh-huh. um, and he, you know, he was kind of, okay, well, we'll talk, we'll talk. And I went immediately across the street and called my partners. They were, they knew, they, they were watching. <laughs> and so we never knew at that point if he bought it or he didn't buy it. But a couple weeks later, he wasn't answering the phone when I would call. And I figured that he he knew what was going on. He figured he had friends in the federal building, and I figured that he found out who I was. And then one day, um, there are flowers at the front desk and a little box, and it's for me. And we opened it up, and uh, now I say they were gerbils, but everybody else said they were little white mice. They were from him. And so he was basically telling me he he knows the you know he knows <laughs> he what knows I you're do. A rat. Yeah. yeah. So then I just doubled down, and my partners and I we just we just went after him. We looked at every expenditure. We followed. We put transponders on his planes. We did everything, and uh, we were able to prove that he was a pilot. He was smuggling uh, Medellin coke into South Florida for Escobar. And he had a series of pilots. Um, one, when we took down the case, uh, one of his pilots with a, was a magistrate from South Dakota. Another wow. one uh, uh, was a, he claimed to have been an old, uh, an Air America pilot. Um, it was just such an intriguing case. Well, hang on case. for a second before we go right past that reference, Air America, that's a very unique little thing. So just give everybody the quick history because that was a CIA operation, Air America. He he told everybody that he had been an Air America pilot um, when in reality he was a pilot who sold his services to anybody and he was yeah. smuggling. Yeah. He was flying in coke for, for Casey. Yeah, he's trying to make everybody think he's a tough guy. Yeah. 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 Who was who was the other pilot, Steve? Um, that was Air America when we talked to um, um, his handler, the guy from American Made, Michelle. Um, the movie uh, Barry uh, Seal. Barry yeah, Seal. Yeah. Barry Seal. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that, it, it, it's a small world. Yeah. He claimed that or? Yeah, uh, Barry, you know, who knows what the truth was, but uh, we're going to have, uh, I don't know if you remember Ernie Jacobson, Jake Jacobson, uh, on the show. He was one of the case agents that took down Barry Seal. Yeah. Well, this was, you know, early 80s, and we could never prove that any of the dope came to Minnesota. But what he was doing was he was hiding out in Minnesota. Um, he was ingratiating himself with the entire community, throwing money everywhere, felt he was safe, let his guard down a lot. Um, and we were able to see what he was doing, track every move. Uh, we knew when he went down to South Florida and we knew when he came back because that's when they'd closed down the credit union to count his money. <laughs> hey, Michelle, real quick, uh -huh. after after you had your little encounter at the federal building, did mm -hmm. he take additional measures to uh, avoid surveillance to try and find out what you guys were? Did he change his behavior at all or did he just think, hey, I'm too smart for you guys. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. You know, we had the benefit there that he always thought he was smarter than everybody else and that, that he could con everybody. Yeah. So um, he changed his story a little bit, tightened it up for the community. Um, we had a a local news channel that um, we were upset with. They ran a story about him uh, too early. We asked them to hold off because we were really close to an indictment. Um, and the, the best part is that we had, we knew all his planes. We knew where he bought his avionics. We knew, we knew every little thing about him. I had, this is how I would spend my Friday and Saturday nights. Would I be going out with friends? No, I would sit there, you know, in my living room in front of the TV and I would do toll analysis. I would oh, know yeah. every phone call <laughs> that he would make. Um, I hadn't had, I hadn't done a wiretap yet. So that wasn't even in the picture. I, I did the old-fashioned way, looking, you know, Steve, looking at those toll oh. records, which told you who he was calling. So, right. So then we could figure out all these Volkswagens showing up everywhere. He would give everybody a Volkswagen. In the end, I think we counted like 64 uh, Volkswagens purchased wow. from one dealership in Phoenix, Arizona. That's where he was, he was laundering money. Holy cow. Um, so what were the Volkswagens then just a way to launder money? Were they transporting dope or what were they doing? They, Hiding cash the, or just laundering money. And this is, he would get favors. Um, you know, he'd give, uh, give somebody a car and then, you know, he'd, he'd think he's going to get something from them for it. Um, but he could even everything from, you know, the, the police department, you know, he gave them these vehicles, these Volkswagen vehicles as police cars. That's and ridiculous. He, he did. He just hit everybody up, and he was just a a, a flat out. Didn't anybody man. at the police department? I got it. So I got a bone to pick here. I mean, I, I know we don't want to talk bad sometimes, but it's like, but did not anybody down there think? Sorry, guys, we, we can't accept this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, it should have seemed coming like a red flag. Wait a minute. The mayor's got a new pool. You've just bought the airport. You're spreading all this money around. I would probably tell you there aren't too many Puerto Ricans there in northern Minnesota. So he had to be kind of sticking out like that. I mean, how was somebody not able to connect the dots themselves there internally and go, hey, 
um, you know, Marge, we got a problem here. I think we've got a dope dealer. So you've <laughs> you've probably heard the the term Minnesota nice. I mean, Minnesotans do think the best of people. I mean, you if you knew this little town, it is quaint. You know, it's Mayberry RFD, more modern than that, but it is um, everybody's going to trust everybody until you can't trust them. And there was nothing that he was doing, you know, for them to to really think that he wasn't anything but, but what he said oh, he was. I know, but I'm sorry, papering over the windows at the credit union, shutting it down for two days. <laughs> I mean, was there not any currency trans folks? So they're calling them CTRs back in the day. If you had $10,000, yeah. you're supposed to do a yeah. currency transaction yeah. report. Was nothing being triggered nothing, to say, hey, nothing oh my God. except we did. Uh, the reason we were able to convict him the reason we had such a tight case on him was the people they were they were completely surprised when it came out that he was a drug smuggler um but they they testified in fact the only case that we didn't get a conviction on um was a case we brought against the pilot one of his pilots a drug pilot who was the magistrate from South Dakota um he uh we t- we charged him with perjury um which was uh interesting because we lost it's the only case we ever lost and thank god we did because he ended up being a major witness for us and now he wasn't a perjurer <laughs> Hey, all right. Couldn't afford a perjurer, yeah. yeah, that's for sure. Hey, but but there was something interesting too, because as you guys were getting close, right, there was one episode to where he had to ditch one of his planes. Yeah. So, you know, it was getting frustrating. We opened that case up in, in spring of nineteen eighty one. And it actually became later it became our office's first uh organized crime drug enforcement task force case, Z001. Uh all right. very very first case. And um, we we needed to, you know, see what's the end game here. And we had transponders on those planes, and every once in a while we would get a call that the plane was, you know, just landed at Tamiami Airport, you know. And we were in Minnesota. We had partners we were working with from DEA and local departments in Florida, but it was just hard to do it when we weren't. We weren't there. But April 23rd, 1983, uh, one the transponders uh, went off. The A pilot in a Cessna uh, 210 d- did a touch and go at Tamiami Airport because it was followed in by customs, turned around and went into the Bahamas, crash landed in the Bahamas. Uh, that that was one of Casey's planes. That was one of the planes that I took the pictures of. That's one of the planes that he stashed up in Minnesota. That was one of his primary planes. Um, and we got down to the Bahamas as fast as we could, working with the Royal Bahamian Police Department. They were they were fantastic. We said, please do us a favor. That plane, which you know, crash landed out in the middle of nowhere. Didn't really crash. It was it was forced down, and the pilot escaped. Uh, they didn't find the pilot, but we had them take the avionics out of the plane. They found the fuel containers, um, 
took all of that. So by the time uh, myself and the IRS agent got down to the Bahamas, um, I knew I knew it was Casey's plane. Uh, we were able to prove from the avionics, um, the labels on the back, everything had been the maintenance had all been done in Minnesota. Labels that had been torn off on the the big blue fuel containers that they used to put in the back of the plane uh, to fly from Columbia. Um, even parts of the labels, you could see the Minnesota zip code for Princeton, Minnesota on it. So we knew we, we had them. And the best part is 300, 360, 376 uh, pounds of Coke were seized off that plane. Nice. The, um, so, so now we had dope. We had dope that we could bring into court uh, to convict them of. And the pilot... Uh, was never found there in the Bahamas. He escaped and he hid out at a nudist camp. I mean, this this case, every, everything happened in this case. Uh, so so we got him. Cam going. Uh, Hi guys. Sorry, I'm a special agent. <laughs> I, I can't add. I don't even want to go can't, there. <laughs> you can't. You can't make this stuff up. But we got him. Well, on I a guarantee material. you one thing: you'll never catch anybody at a nudist camp wearing a Nagra recorder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The whole the whole case we um, it was the biggest case in Minnesota and um, at the at the time and there was a lot of coke and you know we always being in Minnesota you're an agent you're a task force officer we always had a thing if you had a big seizure nice seizure it was around a pound okay because you're used to having to buy a couple rounds or whatever how how do you do you know 376 pounds of coke how, how do you how do you do that it was huge that was that was like my own personal biggest <laughs> seizure I, I was that's gonna, your, I was that's your be, first case i was gonna be broke <laughs> had you ever seen what was the most amount of dope because i know you did you worked with dea in baltimore how much dope had you seen prior to working with dea oh, just, what's the biggest amount just small amounts of heroin you know um probably probably like 10 15 grams you know more user amounts and then for coke same uh baggies full you know the the st stuff you buy on the street uh, have so Murph regale you with his biggest dope bus before going to DEA. Yeah, that's the most <laughs> I've ever seen ball? before. I, well, it was actually two ounces, so that was quite a bit more. But yeah. two ounces. And the first case we went, uh, the, for my first undercover, we went to Turks and Caicos Islands, picked up 400 kilos. And Murph didn't believe him. He said, no way, there's not 400 kilos of Coke in the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's interesting, Michelle, because you mentioned a while ago you were addicted to drug cases. And that's what I tell everybody. I was addicted to cocaine at that point, just in a different way yeah. from an investigator side. Yeah, it it is. It's an obsession. It really is. So when these indictments came down, these arrests came down. How did the folks in the in the Minnesota nice town of Princeton take it? I mean, I got to. How how did the town react when all of a sudden they realized they'd been duped? This guy bought the airport, was donating all the stuff, and he was nothing but a freaking you know dope dealer for you know the you what did you say Medellin cartel? Yeah, it was all Pablo Escobar dope. Jeez. Uh, and he had a series of pilots. He had pilots he could choose from that all flew for him. And he was just, he was laundering the money up in Minnesota. Um, so when this news uh, station out of Minnesota ran a story, 
and said he was suspected of being a drug smuggler. And this is before we our indictments came out. Um, that put a lot of people on notice. And um, when we, you know, we did then have a lot of people start cooperating because they wanted nothing to do with it. Um, but he's still a legend there. And, you know, someone asked me once, well, you know, why is that your greatest case? And, you know, did it really make a, a big difference in Minnesota if the dope wasn't coming up there, just the money? I said it was big, and I knew it was big when the um, Minnesota version of Monopoly, one, one, of the, one of the questions in there is what drug did Casey Ramirez get convicted of smuggling? <laughs> so I knew it. And his his attorneys were at the time some of the best, you know, defense attorneys in in the state. And, you know, we beat them and um it was it was just great. And um he ended up he's out now. He ended up being sentenced uh I think he ended up doing twelve years, but uh, he's he's out, and the city has learned. And the the hardest part about the case is we had to figure out how to seize a municipal airport. <laughs> how to we seized those planes? Where do you where you, when you dig up the concrete? Where do you take it? I mean, we we well, had you to, turn it over to the marshals. That's we, up to them. <laughs> and and it was turned back over to the city actually. But the biggest hassle of all was how are we going to seize the fuel? <laughs> That that was that was a problem too. Um, all those all those little things were came into play. So it was just a great case to learn. While I was running around doing undercover and doing all these small cases, I had this nice big case. And especially when you know he's an international uh, drug smuggler. He's, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. That's the first time you went broke uh, buying rounds for everybody. <laughs> and we we just decided we could never do it. <laughs> yeah. But the whole yeah. the whole office was was you know proud of that case, and we only could do the case because well my partners were the greatest, um, and it was a team effort. Nobody right. took credit. No one took credit for anything. It was all about we need to get this guy, and uh, we had the greatest bosses, so mm-hmm. we were able mm-hmm. to do it. Well, there's another interesting thing too because you actually had the chance to work on something before Murph did with Pablo Escobar, and I think we should <laughs> talk about that because you know Steve he, he keeps right he keeps beating this horse. Well, yeah, I, I took down Pablo Escobar, and I'm going, but but wait a minute. Michelle Linhart, you actually worked originally before that, right? Helping taking down one of the biggest pace dealers in the world. And so nobody knows what, I don't think a lot of people realize what pace is. So before we tell the story, give us just a quick insight in terms of by the time cocaine is actually refined, you know, into powder, put into a kilo, and let's say it's transported into the United States, where does it start at? What does it have to go through to get into that final powdered form, and why is the initial part of that production so important? Well, Steve's probably the best one to talk about that. But in a, you know, in a very short version of it, it's you know the cocaine at the time, and this is uh, this is a case that was done in in the uh, early late eighties, early nineties. Um, but Bolivia. You know, everybody thinks cocaine was just grown in, in uh, you know, Colombia. But Bolivia and Peru were huge cocaine production areas. So 
cocaine comes from the coca plant. And before you have cocaine, you have you have to turn it into paste. And it's it's a paste and using a lot of chemicals that gets refined into uh, cocaine hydrochloride. Uh, so, you know, maybe Steve can explain it better. But, no, you're, but you're dead on. You can't. You don't have cocaine without getting original the paste, paste first. from the coca plant. So let's say it starts like in Bolivia, right? So you get the coca plants, you get the coca leaves, you refine all of that stuff, it turns into paste. So they've got their first shipping problem, which is they got to ship it from Bolivia, Bolivia now, to a lab in Colombia, right? That's and then correct. that's where the next part of the processing goes on. So back then, so many of the, the jungle labs that... Um, the Columbia National Police and, you know, DEA and our, all our partners went after. A lot of them were, were actually, you know, convert these conversion labs uh, in, the, in the jungles of Colombia. The leading family in Bolivia uh, that, was, that really was uh, the king of all of the coca growing. King of paste. <laughs> <laughs> the king of coca growing was the Roca Suarez family. And when they go back, they started in rubber. They became, you know, internationally known because the family was in the rubber industry. Um, but... Uh, uh, they branched out. Uh, one of the one of the brothers branched out, um, and my uh, group in San Diego, the first group that I supervised, uh, enforcement group that I supervised, had a case on Jorge Roca Suarez, who was the son of the kingpin uh, in Bolivia, and. He ended up, he was uh, the person that the Medellin cartel, especially um, uh, Pablo, bought their paste from. So without buying it from the Suarez family, you have no cocaine. You have no Medellin cartel. You have so no Cali cartel. The, so They kind of had the lock on everything. They They did. And... In, in DEA, you know, we always are going for the bigger fish, right? And it's always, you know, I got my my fish is bigger than your fish, and <laughs> and so my joke with Steve the other day was to say, hey, you know, cases other than maybe Chapo, cases really don't get bigger than Pablo Escobar. I mean, you only once in a lifetime <laughs> get a Pablo Escobar, a Chapo, and I said, but you know what, Steve, I beat you because. <laughs> We indicted Jorge Roca Suarez. <laughs> but there's a little bit of a backstory because you kind of uh, glossed over some of that. But you went, you were running this group one out of San Diego as a group supervisor. So that group supervisor is a promotion. So you get promoted, right? Why did you pick San Diego? Well, you know, I, I just wanted to stay in Minneapolis my whole career and work nothing but cases. I didn't want to be a boss. I didn't. I just wanted to work good cases. Um, Jim Brasseth wouldn't even let me, <laughs> I didn't care about promoting. I didn't even want to get my GS-13, which is, you know, an agent rate goes every year, they get a raise and uh, in grade. And, you know, you you get a grade 13 by submitting paperwork to show that yeah. you've done all these great cases. I always told them I was too busy. I, <laughs> I didn't care about it. Well, every agent cares about getting their 13. I didn't care. I just wanted to do cases. So what he did, he knew me well. He took my car keys. 
He said, <laughs> now how, as an agent, you can't do anything without a G car, right? Right. He took my keys and he says, you'll get your keys back when you submit your package. <laughs> 13 package. So I spent the weekend. I did my 13 package. I got my keys back. I became a 13. And uh, on a Friday the 13th in, what, 1985, a teletype comes out. And I am transferred from Minneapolis to St. Louis. I thought I was going to die. I didn't see that coming. I There was no advance notice, just a little teletype that came into the office. We were all in shock. So I had a decision to make. You know, I'm not quitting DEA. I love DEA. Um, I have I have a choice to make, quit DEA or go to St. Louis, and I went to St. Louis. In St. Louis, I always asked, how do I get back to Minneapolis? And they used <laughs> to say, well, the only thing you can do is promote, you know, maybe go back there as the group supervisor or the rack. So I... Uh, I started putting in for supervisory jobs, and at the time, Steve, I don't know if uh, same with you, but at the time it was if you put in for one, you put in for all. Yeah, I went through that for a little while. So I took a chance, and I raised my hand and said, okay, I will be a supervisor. Every, every, I was always having to put, get pushed into these things, right? I said, I'll do it. And, uh, the career board met. I had been in St. Louis about a year, year and a half. The career board met. And at noon, I was going to Houston. And I had never thought that I would ever go to Texas. And by the end of the day, it came out that I was going to San Diego. Not a bad spot. That is how I ended up in California. That's how I ended up with Group One in San Diego. But it was also a challenge, too, because they'd been after this guy and people were telling you, you're not going to get him, Michelle. He's untouchable. You're not going to get um, Roca Suarez. I like the name. It's, it's kind of like Rico Suave, Roca Suarez. <laughs> you are not going to get Jorge Roco Suarez. You took that as a personal insult. You're like, okay, hold my beer. Not that you drank, but, you know, hold my seven up. Watch this. <laughs> so, so it's interesting. And part of it, part of it is that, you know, if you were in San Diego, if you weren't working in New York and Miami and, and usually L.A., you know, it was like, oh, you can't have these big cases. So in San Diego, we, we ended up, we had venue. We had um, a prosecutor willing to take the case, and we had some venue to pursue that and, and, and to dig deep into Jorge Roca Suarez and indict him and a couple other people. Um, and we had from DEA headquarters and from Bolivia, you know, they they thought, oh, try it, try it, but it's never going to work, you know. They just didn't believe us. So we paddled along with that case, and the the case agents in my group, I mean, they just, they put it together. And uh, we knew that we were going to be able to indict him. We were going to be able to get him. We indicted him. We told L.A. that we believed he was living in Los Angeles, that he had houses, he had a wife and kid in L.A., and we were going to come up and surveil it. And if we saw him, we were going to lock him up. And they were basically, 
well, have at it. Good luck. You know, they weren't interested at all. And so in a way that was good because most DEA would say, you're coming into my territory and you're going to lock up Jorge Roca Suarez. Uh, we'll be out there. But we didn't get any of that. We kind of got a, a, well, good luck to you. Have a nice day. Well, we had, we put cameras up. We went up to LA. We watched, we watched, we watched. And he showed up to take his kid to school one day and we locked him up. So we call LA back and say, uh, we have him in custody. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I bet the so sack guess, in LA is going crazy. So I guess they had, I guess they had a little egg on their face, but um, just this this great little group in San Diego that I ran, this group one had these had a way of just doing Getting good old done. police work, and and we got it done. And how we long did it take? It, it took a. This wasn't an overnight thing. No. How long did this thing take? That was a, that was a couple years. We worked Roca, um, and many informants and all all the problems with you know dealing with uh, informants who were down in South America and you know having to get them up and uh, all that. But we convicted him, and I think he was sentenced to thirty years. Uh, nice. We seized his houses. We seized his assets. Um, and then uh, with the case agents, I was able to, uh, I got to debrief him uh, at one point. And that's when we learned, you know, the connection with all of the big Colombian traffickers. And, and did you know at the time how big this was going to be? I knew I knew how big the Roca family was. I knew how big his father was. And I knew that they were instrumental in the uh, development of, you know, the expansion of the Medellin and the Cali cartel and, and uh, you know, all things cocaine out of Colombia. Um, but I, I didn't know if, if we could really, really scoop it up and, and not only have, you know, drug charges, but have the money laundering charges, which is also what him and his associates were doing. So um, with some very key informants that were developed by the agents in my group and, you know, lots of, lots of hassles and lots of headaches, let me tell you, um, I just gave them the support. They did it. I gave them the support they needed, and we were able to pull it off. And to this day, and there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, flash, flash about it when he was arrested or anything, because everybody was still, you know, concentrating on the Colombian cartels. And, you know, this was just little San Diego. But that that group was, we we pulled stuff out of the hat all the time. We, we led the division in asset seizures, in arrests, you name it. And we just weren't, we just didn't advertise it. You know, in, in DEA, there's some fantastic investigators and fa fantastic analysts and diversion investigators, agents. But we do have a few that are a little bit uh, skeptical about things, you know. And, and one of the sayings they loved was big cases, big problems, little cases, little problems, no cases, no problems. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So and, when, you, when you're talking about big problems, that's absolutely, you get a case that level, there's a lot, a lot of challenges. So a, a lot has to do with, you know, your bosses too. You know, you need to, uh, when you're a group supervisor, you, you got several levels. You got an ASAC, you got a SAC, and then you've got DEA headquarters. And, um, you know, you, you sometimes have to, have to, have to fight 
you have to, um, you know, if they're not going to take a leap of faith that you can do something, you, you have to persuade them. And, uh, but we had a good track record. So they usually let us run with what we wanted to run with. Well, and there was, there was another little organization you guys took a look at also, wasn't it? Just across the border there? Hey everyone, as promised, this is a two-parter. We're going to keep it short here before we get into episode 10, part two of Michelle Linhart and her rise through the DEA to become the first female to ever lead that agency. Real quickly, go over and check us out, patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've launched uh, the beginning of the month. We've got a lot of good stuff in there. We have a lot of good stuff coming up for you too. Interviews, live streams, Q&A, bonus sessions, and things you will never hear anywhere else. So make sure you head on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be back on Thursday with part two of this interview with Michelle Linhart.